Cole has this incredible talent to do movies with depth and movies that push the envelope. And the, when I mentioned this and when Paul was excited, I thought, you know, we could do a musical that's not superficial, that's not glib, that has different layers, um, and that really challenges the country, challenges moviegoers. Um, there is no one better at that as a director than Paul Verhoeven. Um, and I don't think there's anyone better at that as a writer than I am, and it's a nice combination, you know. So I was thrilled when he wanted to do that musical. Welcome to an episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the film podcast where all the movie bombs, both financially and critically, get a second life. I'm one of your hosts, Troy, and with me is my bestest friend, Brad. How you doing, Brad? Doing well, man. Don't short this podcast. It'll come back to bite you. Yeah. You like, you like that joke? Yeah, yeah, yeah I like that. Yeah, That's yeah, good. Yeah. Um, so we're on episode 34 makes it an even episode so it was my pick and we're recording on january 31st so technically this is the last pick of january which we decided to go back and look at all of the listener feedback of people giving us some great movie recommendations and brad and i had to sift through this and this one's unique it came through a facebook message that we received uh, early on and as we were pitching this concept to our friends and a bunch of other listeners this one movie popped up kind of regularly, which surprised me. And it's none other than 1995's Showgirls, which, I mean, full disclosure, Brad, back, what, 34 episodes ago when we were talking about this concept and talking about movie bombs, Showgirls was not on my radar. Not on my radar you. either, buddy. I, I, can't, I can't say that I thought, I thought if we did a Paul Verhoeven film, it would like not be, you know, maybe Starship Troopers, but... Yeah, not this we're gonna, one. We're going to do Showgirls first. Yeah, so, and what's unique about this one is you and I, this is just uncharted territory for, I mean, if, like you said, Starship Troopers, I can talk about that all day. Showgirls, I've never seen it. Uh, was was no intent ever watching this thing. It, it just was not on my radar. But when we decided, you know what, let's dive into this thing. Let's see what it's all about. Because it does have a bit of a juicy history leading up to it. And even, you know, the stories post-release. We, we had to find a guest, somebody that met two criteria. One, they would just know about this film inside and out. I mean, at every level. And two, that they know about film in general. And there are very few people that <laughs> when I talk to on a regular basis that just put me to shame in terms of film, film facts, history. Um, and, and trust me, I, I am a huge Asian cinema fan. And this person that we have on this week could probably just beat me at trivia on that on that topic alone. So I want to introduce one of my best friends. He's an East Coaster with me. And we brought what I consider one of the, the biggest film experts that I know onto the show. And it's none other than our good friend, Jose. Jose, how are you tonight? I'm good. Thank you for that intro. Um, now I'm hoping I live up to that that uh, sort of I, intro <laughs> i have no doubt you will you surprise me every time you and i talk i end up just writing a note down or something saying i gotta go catch that film because i i didn't know about it 
Um, and, cool. and you're the one because we talk constantly that sends me a message or something that says, Hey, did you notice on deadline today, they posted such and such, or you're linking me to these articles. So not only do you know yeah. about film history, but you're, you're pretty, I would say, tied into just what's going on in the film industry in general, right? Cause you, you read all the trades and everything else too. Uh, yes, I, um, Weirdly enough, I wanted to be a stunt performer, which I think is also where Troy, you and I connected over our mutual love for Jackie Chan and his sort of his stunt team and the craziness that they did. Um, but yeah, I, since college, I've been reading Variety and Hollywood Reporter and Deadline and um, kind of a, I'm kind of a pop culture enthusiast. And that sort of just involves everything, movies, TV, film film critique, analysis, all of it, so. And in yeah. theater too, I've seen and you <laughs> perform as well and you are fantastic. So you. I, you, <laughs> we could not have anybody better for, for this show. But Jose, I know you so well inside and out, but our listeners, they, they, they don't. And we, we do this with all of our guests. We wanna ask a few questions just for everybody to get to know you and to sort of level set. Because when you're talking about film, Film is all about subjectivity and perception, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to understand where people are coming from. So Brad and I have come up with a few questions. They're unique. And oh we thought we're, we're, and you haven't seen these questions. So we said, hey, we're going to ask Jose this so that everybody kind of gets to know you a little bit better. But the first question, it comes from me. Okay. So this one's easy. What is your favorite movie of all time? <laughs> By the way, hello, Brad. Um, hello. I'm meeting you for the first time as well. Thanks for having, thanks for having me on the show. Um, favorite movie of all time is Psycho. Um, that, wow. That, it is out of all of them. It's I've seen it a million times. Um, I think just as a pop culture cultural phenomenon, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the way he presented it, marketed it, showed it, the way audiences react to it, reacted to it, and freaked out. Um, and then just also the way it's shot, the plotting, the suspense. I caught it as a kid on TV um, and I just was, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I just, I couldn't. And I was like, what's gonna happen now? She's dead and, and oh no, the car's not gonna sink. What, how are they gonna get him? What's gonna happen? And I just, I loved it. So it's, it's gotta be Psycho. I own that like I think three times over on different types of media. <laughs> Wow. So the VHS, the DVD, yeah. the special edition, the 50th anniversary or whatever. Um, and I actually just bought the sequels. I hadn't really seen Psycho 2, but um, I had seen Psycho 3 and I, I absolutely love that. And I love the screenwriter for that movie as well. So that's a great now have you we live out here and I'll say the the great thing about the Baltimore sort of DC area is just the all just the theaters like the Parkway is my favorite theater of all time. Uh, but you get the AFI out here as well. Have you seen Psycho on the big screen? I have. I have. Um, I think one time was AMC, the other was at the AFI. Um, and it might have even played at the Senator Theater, which is our historic oh, yes. theater in Baltimore. Um, I used to work there as an usher from nine, 1990. I think the first movie... The first movie they played when I started working was The Hunt for Red October. We actually showed Showgirls, and that's sort of where I, I <laughs> okay. fell in love with it, right? So we were always doing the, the dance in the lobby, and <laughs> yeah, so. That's wow. awesome. All right, Brad, you got the next question. Uh, yeah, if you could look through one famous person's email without them knowing, whose email would you look through? Oh, my God. Whoa. Whoa, that's, uh, 
That's an unexpected question. I know they're surprise questions. Uh, we told um, you they were surprise. And I like the fact that you're giving us a surprise, like reaction. Uh, okay. One, one thing. What's the first one to come to mind? It, it's got to be instinctual. All right. So instinctual, the first one that comes to mind is Donald Trump's Trump. emails. I was going to say Donald <laughs> Trump. Yeah. Everyone wants it. Yeah. I've got to read it. I've got to read it. I've got to read it all <laughs> and read the drafts. Click on what was, you know, edited, <laughs> what sentence changed. Yeah. Would, would you do it through the presidency or would you go back before that? I mean, I would pick that. That His would be definitely one. I want to go through the whole thing. All oh of it. I want to see Could everything. you imagine? <laughs> I want to see the AOL accounts. I want to see yes. the, the, the fake emails, all of it. <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. God, what do you think his AIM screen name was? <laughs> um, Who knows, man? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Kitty Handler. Kitty, oh, oh wow. God. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, no, no, I will never be. I will I never that. be asked back. No, no, no. Uh, you will definitely be asked back for that. Answer. That was awesome. Okay, third question. Yeah, Alleg Hollywood, allegedly. 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 Right. Yeah, we don't want to get sued or anything. But if Hollywood made a movie about your life, who would you like to see play the lead role as you? <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so there is actually an actor that looks a hell of a lot like me. His name is uh, Vaughn Flores. Vaughn um, Flores. He, his name is Vaughn Flores, Canadian actor. Not a lot of people know about him. Um, he's certainly not super famous. He's done a lot of TV. Uh, he was on uh, Roddenberry's and Andromeda. Was that what it was called? It was a science fiction oh, show. Oh, yeah, the science fiction. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I've never seen it. So he actually would be my doppelganger. So, I mean, he'd be the obvious pick, but I always just tell people I, I look like short round grown up. So maybe Kihi <laughs> Ooh, No time for love, Dr. Jones. <laughs> no time for love, Dr. Jones. Um, so maybe Kihi Kwan could play me or, or if we're doing like a gender flip sort of thing, maybe Maggie Q or Lana Condor. Okay. Yeah. So, but it'd have to be an action. Shave their head. It has to be an action film. <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> all right brad you're up you got the last uh, two yeah what is your least favorite well sorry what is your your favorite film from your least favorite genre oh man so if this one's always so i hard. like all the genres yeah but you gotta you gotta pick the genre so what's the genre that you just out of, out of everything when it pops up you don't gravitate to right out of the gate so this is weird i probably wouldn't go to to like musicals Oh, right that's... away, which is which is strange, right? Because yeah. I like the dancing and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. when it comes to film, action, drama, I'll even take a comedy. But if you know, we haven't even gotten to prom on Netflix yet, which I hear is magnificent. Um, it's a Broadway musical. Ryan Murphy did it, and it's just like, nah. I think I'd I think I'd rather watch this uh, Dolph Lundgren thing. Um, I agree. Yes, yes, you would. Prom? yes. yes. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> So, um, uh, so I guess if my, I guess my favorite musical, it, it had to be Chicago, honestly, I, out of all of them, I oh, really did pick. love that one. I connected to that, not just because I went to law school. I don't know why, but, um, Ooh, are those law degrees in the background? Is that? Yes, they are oh, actually. Okay. Okay. Um, I was trying to, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to make out. They but are. <laughs> yes. They, so they are whatever we respected. say, he can get us out of jail. Overruled. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You can always call me. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But right, Chicago, last... Chicago is awesome. I saw the preview screening of that. I also saw the, the touring edition of that with uh, live in DC with Jasmine Guy. She was the lead. 
Oh, wow. So how, how many times have you seen it in person as a, as a musical? Twice, I think. Okay. Yeah. What's better? I love it. Is, is, is the live performance better in the film or is it, it you just can't compare? Yeah, I, you can't really compare it because they took, there's obviously lots of places you can go with the movie. And especially with the filmed version, they took a lot of liberties with it in terms of how it's presented live versus the movie. Okay. Um, but they're both beautiful companion pieces. So awesome. Yeah. I love that film too. All right, Brad, bring it home. Uh, what is your favorite movie bomb that you would recommend to everybody? It's this one, Showgirls. <laughs> oh, it is? <laughs> yeah. We lucked out then. That's yeah, awesome. honestly. I mean, obviously the subject matter, but if people are like, what's what's so bad that it's good? Although that's not even really a great phrase for Showgirls itself, but it, it would be this movie, definitely. <laughs> so just you are the one who kind of directed me to a documentary we're going to talk about tonight about Showgirls that's out too. But on top of that, you own a couple of books about the film too. So this actually starts to make sense. And one of the reasons why I thought you were good, because I, I know you've recommended this film in the past to me and I've just pushed it off to the side. But <laughs> how, how many books do you own on Showgirls about uh, the film itself? Is it just a couple or? You know, honestly, it's, um, so I did have a copy of the companion book that was part of this. That was the one that Paul Verhoeven put out in conjunction with the film, right? So it was- He wrote the was... text. There was a bunch of uh, uh, photographs also from like Bettina Rimes, these well-known, Mary Ellen Mark, these these well-known photographers. Um, so there was that one. And I think there's, a, I think I have a copy of the screenplay somewhere. Okay. Right. But, but for the most part, it's been just a lot of uh, what I remember from the press, um, what I remember from reading in the trades about showgirls, um, especially after Basic Instinct, um, you know how at Con they they pre-sell the rights and that's how they get there. Um, it's a completely different like sort of system from before how movies were made before. And I just remember, you know, this announcement: pa Paul Verhoeven and Esther Haas they're going to make this uh, new erotic thriller about Las Vegas. And I distinctly remember Verhoeven um, talking about, he's like, I'm going to put an erect penis on uh, the US screens, a, a erect penis or whatever. And I was just like, okay, erect That's penis, a good I'm Verhoeven. in. I'm yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> well, so. and we should probably let everybody know, I mean, we're, we're about 15, 16 minutes into the show. This is going to be probably an episode that you don't listen to work openly, etc. So we, uh, yeah. we generally don't, you know, get too raunchy. But when you're talking about showgirls, and especially when we talk about the dialogue and things that are going on with the nature of the film, and heck, the just the plot in and of itself, this is probably one of those we, we should just call out real quick not suutable for work listening or heck it, at the end of the day it may not just be suitable for any kind of listening we may just <laughs> yeah, totally bomb this thing this is gonna get the, the e rating yes the e rating yeah On so podcast saying yeah, yeah um <laughs> I, so we usually this one i i gotta be honest with you this this was an interesting week so jose you've seen this many many times and you saw it theatrically right because obviously you worked in the movie theater when it came out brad you watched it for the first time right yeah so i no. i text you this i text you this this morning i started it last night i was home by myself started it last night and kind of started it late and got sleepy and was like all right i'm gonna watch the last 45 minutes this morning so i watched showgirls with a bunch of coffee this morning on a sunday and i was like 
I don't know what I'm doing with my life, but here we go. So, so yeah, so I, I watched Showgirls and had coffee. So yeah, I, I had never seen it. And I think it was Thursday night. I, I start to go down into, into the theater that we have. And all of a sudden my wife comes down to have She's like, Oh, what are you doing? I said, I want to watch Showgirls. Oh, I want to see that. I'm like, Oh, you do. It's like, well, this is gonna be awkward. And then she yells up the steps, hey, Cameron, you want to watch Showgirls? Now, mind you, no, my, no. my son is 15. <laughs> and Cameron no. yells down, is that that stripper movie? And I'm like, yeah, you don't want to see it. He's like, nah, I don't want to see that. So, so we dodged that bullet. I don't know what my wife was thinking. So uh, yes, I had the pleasure of, of watching <laughs> Showgirls with Tabitha next to me. Wow. Um, so that that was an interesting view. I didn't know what to get into. I, I mean, again, I've seen the trailer. I know about it. I know about its NC-17 rating. I had um, seen some clips, too, on like YouTube and stuff like the holy water scene. You know, I've seen certain little snippets in all out of context, which yeah. is even more bad shit, like seeing showgirls <laughs> and having zero context for what's going on, too. So actually, let me ask, did you watch a red band trailer or a green band trailer? The trailer, I've, I had never seen the Red Band trailer. I'd only seen like the for general population viewing. And gotcha. I, I know when it came out on home video, I think Verhoeven put a R-rated cut out there where they had to, you know, take three minutes off or something. Especially for Blockbuster. blockbuster Does everybody yeah. remember Blockbuster? Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting experience. But I, I got to say, um, it was, uh, well, we'll get into it on Thoughts of the Film because um, Tabitha obviously, was, uh, wow, she had a, she walked away thinking it was the worst thing she'd ever seen. No. So. <laughs> well, you know, it, honestly, it's, uh, it's an oddity because of its NC-17 rating. It was almost studio sanctioned. Like they went into it saying, you know what, we're gonna release this as NC-17, even though it was known as the quote unquote kiss of the commercial kiss of death. And I think it's probably one of the few, if only NC-17 films that had like more than 3000 theaters when it debuted, which I'm sure, you know, Brad will get into, but. Um, yeah, let's transition into that. So Showgirls came out in 1995, Brad, it failed both commercially and critically but let's start with the box office so how did this sucker do okay so you got a 40 million dollar budget um and you pull in half of that at 20.3 million dollars domestically um, right yes domestically i will say um it did have a second run internationally in 2000 and it uh got another seven thousand dollars out of that so congratulations <laughs> okay um yeah rotten tomatoes does oh, it, God, does, do we even. do we know? Does anyone know? Do you want to take a guess at what the Rotten Tomatoes would be? I'm two percent. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna say single digits. I'm gonna say nine. I actually thought it was gonna be way worse. It's twenty three percent. Oh, so kind of high. Yeah. It could have gone up. <laughs> I think it went up over the years. Okay. And uh, the audience score is thirty seven percent. So you're looking at roughly about one third approval rating on that. Okay. Um, do you guys remember? And Jose might because he was. Uh, an usher in a movie theater. Do you remember some of the films that came out in September of 1995? Um, all right. So there are some I, big ones. So if I remember correctly, and this is a while, by the way, I always cringe when I hear like Brad say, say something like when I watched Event Horizon, I was 14. Cause like <laughs> I'm, I'm older. I'm, I'm much older than you, Brad. Um, 
But so if I remember correctly, I think 95, it's, you know, there's still sequel-itis. And I think my favorite Die Hard was the biggest earner of that year, I think, Die Hard 3 with a vengeance, right? Ooh, you're, wow. Yes, um, Die Hard with a vengeance was the highest, you, guy knows highest grossing film of the, of the year. Yeah. Um, but it was still like sequelitis, right? Like people were, you know, they like, I think that summer was a, a bunch of sequels. So, uh, you know, Showgirls would have been, you know, something new, something different. I don't know. And I also have some reasons why I think it didn't do well either, but yeah. So here, here's what it was released up against. Do you all remember the horror movie, The Prophecy? Yeah, Christopher Walken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tu Wong Fu, thanks for everything. Uh, Julie Newmar? Yes. You guys remember that? Yeah. Okay. I love it. You Have you guys not seen that? It's been, I think it used I, to be on HBO all the time. All the time. Yeah. I've so, never seen it. So that yes. year, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert was the uh, the indie drag film. And then this was the Steven Spielberg produced drag film. Not that it's not a bad movie. It's a very feel-good movie. Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and um, John Leguizamo in drag. It's hysterical. You have to see it. Okay. I've seen Priscilla. Priscilla's good. I've never seen, I, I just, this one never, I, I, once I saw Priscilla, I was like, I don't need to see the other one, but my wife loves it. This Here's was a, like the Disney version of Priscilla. Okay. okay. Here's a banger for you. Hackers. Oh, oh my, my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Starring um, a then married um, Angelina Jolie and Johnny Lee Miller. That's right. They were married at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Acid burn. Is that when they put their two names together? They're acid burn or something. I think like so. That? Yeah. Or, um, I actually like that movie. It's a deep, that's a deeply misunderstood movie. By yes. The way. <laughs> um, here is one that I think is a crazy movie. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. Was that Matthew McConaughey? McConaughey Mahon, Mahon, yeah, so that's the one they did. I think they re, like released that when they were both kind of coming up big. Didn't she sue to like not have that movie come out or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I, I think so. I think she tried to stop it yeah. coming out. And I think at that time, what, McConaughey only had Boys on the Side. He was like the hunky cop. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't big at that point. Yeah, yeah, not, not at that point. Yeah, because that thing sat um, on the shelf for a while before it hit. It the did. Movie. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, Empire Records. Awesome. Another yes. Renee Zellweger. <laughs> oh yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, to die for. Nicole Gus Van yes. Sant. This is a big one. one. Huge movie. Uh, seven. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And uh, Halloween Six: The Curse of Michael Myers. I don't think I saw that. I think I think I yeah I've seen. Was that. it good? Yeah. Was it good? It, it's Halloween Six. I mean, curse is okay. Yeah, it's all right. I saw Seven at a sneak preview at College Park when I was in college. Um, had we had no idea what it was. I only knew David Fincher from Alien Three and all of his music videos. And when that when the lights came up, like everybody was shell shocked and their mouths were open and no one was talking. Yes, I, I can imagine. I can imagine having zero knowledge of what is that movie was about, and walking out and just being like mouth open, just in awe. And yeah, I think I went shock. and got a pizza and just like <laughs> collapsed in bed. Like it was, it was crazy. <laughs> wow, that that's uh, that's a lot of heavy hitters to go up against. Yeah, yeah. Remember when there were like were a lot of movies that used to be released all the time? That was just a random September yeah. in '95, and there was pretty big movies so it's crazy so it comes out it doesn't do well obviously it has some stiff competition and let, let's be perfectly honest when this thing was released so i i, I want to level oh, i should add also sorry oh, yep go i ahead. meant to br bring this up 
VHS sales of uh, Showgirls. Did you all see how how much it made? Hundred million. Hundred million dollars. Never and- underestimate pervy men. So the crazy that you know the industry term for this is um, ancillary profits, right? So your VHSs, your DVDs. Um, Brad, I'm sure you're going to let us know this, right? It's the movie has turned a profit. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Completely yeah. turned a profit. Yes. And it's probably one of the more valuable movies in the uh, United Artists MGM catalog. Well, yeah, for a while, it was MGM, one of MGM's like top producers in terms yeah. of home media sales. And yeah. I'm sure it still does very well. I mean, it doesn't have a 4K release right yeah. now. Well, it, so... it does overseas. Overseas. But, yeah. you know, you, you never know. They can release it again. And it's I'm weird. Sure though. Hooven, if you're listening to this, do a commentary. Please, God. Do oh, that, would be nice. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> well, so when when this came out, so today, even I, I want to say as it's being released, they talk about it as an instant. I, I mean, the copy that I'm holding on Blu-ray, New York Times says an instant camp classic. And everybody, when you run across it in today's uh, environment, it's it's kind of labeled as the worst bad movie. And even Verhoeven and everybody else who talk about it talk about it in the sense of, hey, it's fun. It was supposed to be a comedy and and they, they're trying to rewrite history a little bit, but you mentioned it, Jose, when this film came out, it came out with a, almost like a coffee table book that it was an artistic representation of the film with uh, Verhoeven writing all this text about what he was trying to strive and do, but it was an erotic thriller. It was, it was a drama and the campiness and everything else about it came afterwards. So when, when we talk about this thing, one of the things that we will discuss in detail is how it transitioned into what it is today. But make no mistake that director Paul Verhoeven, when we talk about the people behind the camera, he was going for something very specific and, and he was aiming for that erotic thriller genre. So real quick, what are your guys' thoughts on Paul Verhoeven? I, I got to tell you, when I go back and look at his filmography, there is a stretch of films that I absolutely know nothing about, but then there's another stretch of films when you look at it and you go, wow, this guy was making a lot of money at one point. But how familiar are you with his, his filmography? Is it just the American stuff or have you dabbled in any of his Dutch films? Because he, he is a Dutch director. I know everything since like 87, I guess Robocop was 87. And then kind of up until Hollow Man. So that 13 year, is that 13 years? Yeah, 13 years. Okay. I mean, I know pretty much everything because I saw all that numerous times, especially RoboCop, Total Recall, and Basic Instinct. I mean, I've seen Basic Instinct a few times, but Total Recall and RoboCop are in my pantheon. So I've seen RoboCop a hundred times. Okay. What about you, Jose? I mean, is it just been the American films or did you go back into like Turkish Delight in 73 or Soldier of Orange in 77? Spetters, I know, just got a release here recently um, from one of the boutique companies and that's from 1980, but... I think he was making a lot of Dutch films up to 83. Fourth Man might have been his last one. Did you dabble in any of that or was it just the American stuff? I did it all. Oh, really? <laughs> I dove into all of it. So uh, the way so the way that the two of you have spoken in your past podcasts about um, John Carpenter and even some of your guests um, have discussed the fact that, you know, before you knew who John Carpenter was, his films had sort of like affected you guys. Yeah. I had the same sort of thing with with Paul Verhoeven and I didn't even realize that it was him. Um, and so um, I think something, you know, Brad has often said is, you know, there's a, 
it, when you re-examine a film, it becomes difficult to sort of uh, look at it with new eyes if you have this nostalgic attachment to it. Um, I've tried to break myself from that, but I have a very nostalgic um, connection to Paul Verhoeven's films, especially his American films. So just really, really quickly, um, my brother was my entry point into practically everything. Like he listened to uh, Public Enemy, New Order, he collected comic books. Um, it's why I know about like, you know, Grendel, Mage, if you've heard about those comic oh, books yeah. or, you know, um, uh, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, and he got me into all of these like weird movies, these weird fantasy and sci-fi movies. And I remember being dragged to Robocop and just being like, I, I, I don't know what this is. I don't even know why I'm here. And I just was enraptured. It was amazing. It was like a live action cartoon. It was brilliant. Absolutely. They actually brilliant. made it into a cartoon for kids. Yeah, right, they which, did. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we can talk about the Disneyfication of Robocop on a separate podcast. It's actually kind of disappointing, but, um, and then, Total Recall. I was 16 years old for Total Recall. I remember distinctly that my parents bought movie tickets for like anybody who would come in my graduating class in high school. And it was practically the entire class. So imagine all of these 16 year olds, my parents are the guardians for the R-rated movie. <laughs> we watched Total Recall. It's absolutely amazing. People are dying. There's a three-breasted hooker. Um, you know, it's like the quad Somebody's guy. Somebody's head explodes. The, exactly. Yeah. It's crazy. There's a guy wearing his brain on his head. I mean, it it was amazing. And my parents were, of course, mortified that, you know, the, the weekend it came out, they were like, highest body count. What's with all this violence, you know? Strangely, no parents complained, <laughs> right? Um, and then with Basic Instinct, um, you know, I'm 18 years old. I don't need a parent to go see an R film so I can like go and see that. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being bullied. I'm being, you know, called names in high school. I'm dealing with my sexuality. And I see this movie and Sharon Stone is, she has all the power. She like owns every single room. She's uncrossing her legs and she's like, ah. I've never seen a film before where you know, there's a sex scene and there's tension. People are like, I mean, people were screaming in my in my audience when they were having sex, like, oh my God, he's gonna die, you know? Um, so I do have that sort of connection with Paul Verhoeven, but I did go back through his Dutch stuff. So uh, Turkish Delight, I have a copy of that. Spetters is absolutely amazing. Um, Soldier of Orange, which, you know, sort of dovetails with Verhoeven's uh, background growing up in Nazi occupied, um, Netherlands. Right. And then of course the fourth man spetters is what actually ran him out of the Netherlands. Um, and yeah. if you ask, and if you ask me showgirls is his American spetters, cause there's a lot of similarities between those two movies. Yeah. So spetters he's, he's an interesting filmmaker in that, you know, he's a Dutch director that gets to a point in his career where he's forced over into Hollywood. So it wasn't by choice. Right. When he comes over here, I want to say the the earliest film I've seen of his was Flesh and Blood with Rudger Hauer. So good. And it, and it's fantastic, but I didn't discover that until after discovering RoboCop. So when I saw RoboCop and I, I don't know what it was, I wanted to go back and see what this else this guy had made. And the only thing that was available was Flesh and Blood, watch that. And I, for the longest time, thought that was his first film because never knew anything about, you know, anything he did uh, prior to that. But you look at RoboCop in 87, Total Recall in 90, Basic Instinct in 92, Showgirls in 95, 
Starship Troopers in 97, Hollow Man 2000, he had a fantastic run yeah. of American films and he's still going because he did Black Book in 2006, which got a lot of praise. Elle in 2016, I think he won a Golden Globe um, for that film and directing. Best uh, one feature and best Yeah, he's, he's <clears throat> had a very good track record and he's such an interesting director. And what's fascinating is two of his films, um, Basic Instinct and Showgirls, 92 to 95, he's teamed up with writer Joe Esterhaus. Now, Joe Esterhaus, if you the had- Notorious told, Joe Esterhaus. The notorious <laughs> Joe Esterhaus. So when I go back and look at Joe Esterhaus' filmography, I am shocked at how many of his movies I've seen. So I'm going to read some, and you guys tell me, yep, seen it. So 1978 is kind of, I think, his first writing credit, and he works with Sylvester Stallone on Fist. Have you guys seen that one? I have not. I've only seen parts of it. I have okay. not. You're not missing much, but it, it's okay, right? So it's a, un, it's a union movie. It yeah. stands for uh, something like Federated Interstate Truckers, something like that. It's about him becoming the truckers union. Yeah, yeah it's, it's Stallone, you know, doing his- Does he arm wrestle people in that one too? No, or no, he does not. No he arm beats wrestling. people up, but there's oh, no okay. arm wrestling. Right. But, but he <laughs> but that really, might have been the genesis. For, yeah, I, the it, it could be. He really hits it big in 83 with Flashdance, Flashdance which was a yeah. sort of a cultural phenomenon for the 80s. And then follows that up with a thriller, Jagged Edge, 1985. Jeff Bridges. Yes. yes. So, so far <laughs> I've seen three Esther House films and I'm like, oh, I forgot Esther House wrote two of those. I knew about Jagged Edge. By the way, Flashdance earned him the title of Swami of the High Concept, which doesn't, it's weird. It doesn't apply to any of his other films. So I don't know how he won that. Um, but it was simply based on, you know, welder by day, stripper by night. And she wasn't even really a stripper. Let's call her a burlesque dancer, okay? But um, yeah, that he got that moniker after Flashdance, right. which is bizarre. <laughs> Big Shots in 87, know nothing about that. Hearts of Fire in 87, haven't seen that either. Betrayed in 1988, which I think is I um, an excellent film. It's uh, FBI trying to infiltrate uh, sort of white supremacist rule. It, it's a really good thriller. Deborah Winger, Tom Berenger. Yes, Tom Berenger is so good in that. Betrayed in 88, checking out in 89. Now, the next one in 89 is kind of fascinating, Music Box. Which Jessica Lang. Yeah, Jessica Lang. So that one is about um, an attorney, and I believe it's her father, is being accused of sort of Nazi war crimes, and he's denying it, and so she has to defend it. But she comes to find out she really doesn't know much about his past. So... If, if you want to check out some good quality Joe Estraus and you haven't seen it, I highly recommend Jagged Edge in 85, um, Betrayed in 88, and Music Box in 89. But after Music Box, it leads to Basic Instinct in 1992. So this is- Do you all know how much he made off of that screenplay? $3 million. $3 million. Yes. Only to be bested several years later by Shane Black's Long Kiss Goodnight screenplay, which went for a record $4 million. <laughs> Yeah, so he, he wrote Basic Instinct in about 13 days, sold it for $3 million, and made it the most expensive screenplay at that time. He follows that up, and I totally forgot about this. In 1993, he does Nowhere to Run, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. So it's actually a pretty good film. But also, he is. In, yeah, and also in 93, he, he does Sliver with Sharon Stone, writes that one. He struggles with that because apparently the way the story goes is he tried writing five different endings, all of which the test audiences said they were so confused. And Esther House eventually just walked off that film. And then the other one, which just 
I think that totally movie is a secret, like huge movie. I think that movie made like uh, over a hundred million dollars. Sliver. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of like the thriller version of Showgirls. <laughs> yes. Because yeah. it has this sort of voyeuristic it. qualities to it. Yeah. That was that was a tough that was a tough adaptation. It's it's messy. It's yeah, messy. It's, it's a messy film. And and the other one that came out uh, shortly after that, same year as Showgirls, because when when he hit it with Basic Instinct, he got this reputation of. I think you said it, Jose. It's like, here's here's a concept. I'll sell you the concept. You pay me a lot of money for the concept. None rings truer than Jade, which came out in 95, which he sold a two-page outline. And it's a San Francisco thriller. And he got paid $1.5 million for that. Four That's million? freaking, right? No, no, it was four pages. <laughs> oh, four pages. Okay. I, heard it, I heard it was four pages. Yeah, I yeah. read it as a two-page <clears throat> outline on a San Francisco-based erotic thriller. And he got paid $1.5 and from that, I don't even know how much of the actual final screenplay he did. I, I think he did all of it, but he he kind of got the money up front just for the outline treatment. And that's he freak, famous. That's freak, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. That's freaking right. William freaking. Yes. Just, yes. Okay. Yeah. And so Esterhaus famously did not want William Friedkin to direct that movie. Yeah. I and Friedkin that. said, you know, he goes, uh, your your craft, your writing is totally intact. I'm not going to change anything. And then he changed everything. <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> have you seen that movie, Jade? I, it's I been have. a long time. Yeah, and that's another I, one that was on HBO all the time. I think all it's the time. I think we're going to tackle it because when we talk about Freakin', there's a couple of films like I would love to talk about Sorcerer, but Jade's another <sighs> one that I would definitely kind of bring up because again, it has an interesting background. Um, and you know it bombed and I, it's an interesting bomb to talk about too so um if you do do that in the future just make a note there is a director's cut which surfaced on cinemax um oh, of, for course Jade. <laughs> of course it did of course of course, <laughs> of course right home of skinemax yeah. yeah perfect um and i gotta tell you it is 50 percent times better than the theatrical in fact oh, okay. it, it makes it a better movie and surprisingly they've never released it but i think you can get it on itunes i'm sure there's ways to find all the unreleased stuff right <laughs> and you know i gotta say of the people in front of the camera behind the camera that maybe just didn't have steady work after showgirls esther house is the one i think just starts to fall off the radar because when showgirls comes out in 95 he does telling lies in america in 97 and here you go, folks. If you're playing not a bomb bingo, this is where you put it down for your Jackie Chan space. He did a screenplay in 97, an Alan Smithy film, Burn, Hollywood, Burn, which had uh, Jackie Chan, Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. uh, Sylvester Stallone. Um, it's a terrible film. Absolutely terrible. Hasn't been released. I think the last Holy copy shit, I own. I've never even heard of that movie before. Oh, yeah. It's Eric Idle is in it. Um, I, I think I have a copy of it on Laserdisc. It's never been released, I think, on DVD, you know, beyond. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? Coolio and Chuck D are in it as well? I, I will tell you what. I'll send you a copy, Brad, you, just so you can see it one time. Okay. But Jackie Chan Can I burn himself. it after, it's the, after I'm done with it? <laughs> Yes, you probably will. And then the last thing I saw was Children of Glory in 2006. Now he has other writing credits, but for characters, because I didn't know there's a Showgirls 2. Um, didn't didn't watch that one. And he got, uh, I think, writing credits or character credits for Basic Instinct 2. So he's, he's kind of dropped off. The other people, before we talk about um, the folks in front of the camera, is I, I want to mention director of photography. Um, I'm going to, I think it's Yost Vacano. Yost Vacano. Yeah, so. Brilliant. He is an interesting uh, cinematographer. He's worked on various Paul Verhoeven films. So he did yeah. Spetters, Robocop, 
Total Recall, Starship Troopers, Hollow Man. He's done some other work, but primarily Verhoeven's using him for, for most of his films. And then um, I'm going to ask you about this, Jose, because I, I don't know much about this um, outside of one interesting tidbit. The choreography for all of the dance, it was Marguerite Pomeran Derricks. Yes, Marguerite Derricks. Yeah, and the interesting thing when I looked up um, some films that she worked on, and we'll talk about this in a second, she did the choreography for a film that was, I don't know if it was trying to compete, but it came out a year later. It was Striptease in 1996. Yep. Um Actually, thank you for the segue because I think one of the things that, that gets missed about Showgirls is the just the expert level, professional level of the dancers and the choreographers that were in it. So Marguerite Palmer Derricks, um, <clears throat> prior to Showgirls, she just had one credit, All I Want for Christmas. I don't know if anybody saw that, um, but it's it's that. it's about these two kids that want their divorced parents to get together for Christmas. Anyway, so she was oh. the choreographer for that. Ooh, ooh, can I guess how it ends? Yes. They get back together at the end, don't they? No, she marries oh. Santa. No, I'm kidding. Oh. No, they, of course. Well, of you course. spoiled it for me, Jose. <laughs> now I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> of course. Um, so she only had that one credit and she did this. It was her first big film. Um, she, you know, she's gone on record saying that, yeah, it was kind of disappointing that the movie didn't do well. But, but in the end, for her, it was, you know, you do the work and the dancing is spectacular. I mean, it's absolutely spectacular. Um, after that, they booked her for striptease, which was yet another sort of like stripper film, but that is based off of the Carl Hyacin novel. So it's more of like a comedy crime thriller um, for striptease. And then another weird, interesting fact is uh, there's, a there's an actress in Showgirls, Rena Riffle. She appears in striptease as well as a stripper. Okay. Um, so she's in both typecast. movies, typecast. <laughs> and not only that, the coda is Rena Miss um, Riffle uh, wrote, got the money together and uh, produced and directed uh, Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. So oh. the, the I saw that, tra I saw that movie, trailer. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I, I don't want to ruin the, or tarnish the memory of like Showgirls, but she went on to also do that. But um, Marguerite Derricks, she has a background in ballet, dance. Um, you probably, if you've ever seen Magnificent Mrs. Mizell on Prime or Glow. She's the choreographer for that. She oh, did a wow. lot of TV, fame, um, bunheads. She's known as the Austin uh, Powers choreographer. So all those dance sequences. Spider-Man 3, right? The little Tobey Maguire dance sequence. She did that. <laughs> yes. When that film turned into The Mask. Correct. Yes. You are you correct. Go. And I don't fault Marguerite for that. But when that she happened, probably got paid for that. She probably, oh, you know, oh, she, she got paid. you know, she did. But I'm yeah. just saying when he starts dancing, I'm like, what what movie am I in? It just became the mask. This is terrible. Um, uh, but she's she's just a, an amazing choreographer. And just to let you know, too, Sue, uh, some of the dancers that are in here, let me just throw out a bunch of them. Um, the African-American Dancer Annie, that is Unjula Brockman. Okay. Um, she's she the one with the short hair? With the short hair, okay. the African-American woman. Um, she slips on the beads. Oh, okay. yeah. She she gets taken out yeah. by the other girl. Okay. She's an amazing dancer. She cropped up also as a badass sergeant in Starship Troopers. I don't know if you remember that. She's a little a little bit part. Um, so we've got Unjula Brockman, Carrie Ann Anaba. She's the uh, one of the fly girls. Uh, one of the Asian fly girls from In Living Color. She's also one of the judges on Dancing with the Stars. Um, she uh, is on the talk, I think. She's one of the hosts on the talk. But she's one of the dancers. Um, she's featured prominently. Um, who else is in there? 
Uh, Christopher Childers, he's the movement and uh, choreography coach for Cirque du Soleil. Um, and actually those three toured for Madonna in the Girly Tour, if you've ever seen that. Have you? Uh, so it's a Madonna concert, it's a concept concert, but basically all of the dancers shave their heads and they appear topless. Um, it was sort of weird, like I think Madonna saw Showgirls and was like, let's get all y'all in there. Let's get goddess um, going on in here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, Terry Beeman, he's worked with Paula Abdul, um, uh, Nancy O'Meara, just really, really great dancers. Kevin Stia, um, he's an Asian uh, dancer. He's the one who's carrying Annie, who slips. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, Sebastian Lacaze, he's also, you'll see, in, if you ever remember Lord of the Rings, he was one of the dancers in the uh, the Kevin Swan act with the Falling Swords, one of the dancers that comes out in the beginning. So there's just a lot of talent up on the up on the screen and it's, it's amazing. And Marguerite was the was the chief choreographer or head choreographer, but there were four or five different assistants that were working behind the scenes for different dance styles as well, correct? Yep. Nancy O'Meara, um, I want to say Michelle Elkin and Andrea something or other, Andrea Morn or something yeah, like it, that. Yeah, it just surprised yeah. me because when you went to the credits, you you to your point, you see a lot of technical people behind the camera just for the dancing in and of itself. Absolutely. So I, I always equate it to like fight choreography. You can kind of tell how good the fight choreography is by who is is going to be running it, but also the talent that they get to sort of execute that. And it really seemed like the one thing that they tried to do from a production standpoint was really bring in some some talent that was going to showcase, you know, this world that they were trying to create. Yep. And uh, oh, one other thing, the, um, the music. So originally they were going to get Prince to do the music. Oh. Um, and at the last second, um, either he got a whiff of what kind of thing he'd be <laughs> signing on to, or he just, there, there was a scheduling conflict, but he contributes two songs to the soundtrack. Um, 319, which is her first dance. Um, Rip Hop Go to Zippa, which is her and um, James dancing in his loft. Um, and then they also asked David Bowie to contribute songs. He only did one, I'm Afraid of Americans. It's in the Crave Club dance sequence. Okay. Um, but the music is done by one David Stewart. Do we know who that is? Not a clue. He is uh, one half of the Eurythmics. So there was oh. Annie Lennox and then oh, there was Lennox. David Stewart. Yes. Um, but he did he did all the scored music for the goddess and for the for the film itself as well. Um, you, you can't find any of his score CDs. They're all completely out of print and they go for thousands of dollars now. You have one? No. Oh, I didn't know if you were sitting on one for retirement. I missed. Or I missed out on it. I missed out on it, and I'm and I'm I'm mad. But anyway, yeah. Okay. So those are the people behind the camera. Yeah. So in front of the camera, we have a unique cast, and we have to start with Elizabeth Berkeley as Nomi Malone. Now, her <laughs> rise to fame before Showgirls. I mean, it was really attributed to the TV show Saved by the Bell, which was on. She's so excited. Three. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so scared. <laughs> I, I also noticed she did a Smokey and the Bandit TV film, Bandit Goes Country, in 94, the year before Showgirls. Wow. But, that's news to me. <laughs> yeah. Before Showgirls, really all she was known for was Saved by the Bell. So obviously she's taking a very risque role. Here's the thing. Everybody portrays her in the aftermath of Showgirls. And I, I just kind of want to ask you guys about this. The, the narrative that is showgirls is that once it comes out in 95 
everybody feels sorry for Elizabeth Berkeley. And even Verhoeven says, hey, I was the one who told her to kind of take it to 11, et cetera. And you get this narrative where Elizabeth Berkeley just kind of falls off the map, doesn't do anything. But if you actually look at her film um, career and TV career, she's always had steady work. I mean, all the way down from 2011 to 2018, she was in the New Girl TV show. She's obviously going to be, you know, in the Saved by the Bell uh, remake, reboot, whatever. But if you go back from 95 to 2020, she's consistently worked. So I really think that narrative is a bit misleading because right after Showgirls, she does the first Wives Club in 1996. So she was still getting work. Now, granted, Showgirls may have um, crushed her ability to take a leading role, but there's no doubt that she was still finding work as a, as a quality actress going on. And there's too many credits to list. And, you know, honestly, I think that's true, but I think she, you know, just in terms of working, I think if you ask any actor or performer, you know, a role is going to be a role, but, you know, she wasn't in First Wives Club very, very long. Sure. It was a pretty memorable role, but I think she kind of got a raw deal in terms of, um, I mean, you hear other people spin it like, wow, she's just so, she's so out there and she's like attacking curtains and throwing fries and, and, you know, we don't want that on our set. Like you hear some people say that, but it's kind of like, wait, that's a performance. She doesn't do this on the set. Um, I think she definitely got a raw deal in terms of not being able to parlay, you know, unfortunately this bomb into like a lead role. It was like, nobody really wanted to give her a chance. Um, and in some of her interviews, she was, mortified by the the reaction to it and she kept a strong head but then you're right she just sort of stopped talking about it um she was either well she was actually my age when she made the movie uh, we were around the same age when when the film came out so she was 19 or 20 yeah can she was 20 yeah. can you imagine being a 20 year old, your first movie, you're half naked in front of 25,000 people on set. Half naked. She's naked. She's, She's fully yeah, naked. Right, right? Four no, months no, in front of everybody. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you the pause button. Uh huh. So she's naked. But I'm just saying, like, as a 19 or 20 year old, you know, to do that, to do the press and then have this horrible reaction and have people think, you know, you're a terrible actress and how could you do this? Like, I, yeah. I, I think she got a raw deal out of it, honestly. I mean, she was, sure, she's a working actress. Yeah. Yes. I um, don't she actually disagree. married a Lauren, yeah. I think, too. Like Ralph Lauren, she yeah. she married uh, somebody in the in the family. But yeah, that's, I, I think that would be tough for any actor to go through, you know? Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, my point being is that when we talk later about a documentary um, called You Don't Know Me, and even when you hear people sort of talk about the history of Showgirls, I, I think they tend to say, after Showgirls, nothing, right? Until the resurgence of Showgirls and then Elizabeth Berkeley comes back into the spotlight, whatever it is. That's not necessarily the case. Was she leading in a bunch of stuff? Absolutely not, because Showgirls did hurt her from that perspective, but it wasn't like she was not working and she just fell off the face of, of the earth and wasn't participating in roles in Hollywood, et cetera. She, right. she had steady work going through. So probably yeah. not the glamor of Saved by the Bell, and her <laughs> career did derail a little bit, but the the other person, um, there's a lot of people in this film, but there's it really comes down to three. It's Elizabeth Berkeley, it's Kyle McLaughlin as Zach Carey, which I, I know him from Dune, Blue Velvet, 
The Hidden, which is absolutely fantastic. One of my favorite movies ever. It, that so is an good. amazing science fiction film. Jack Shoulder. Twin yeah, Peaks? Twin Peaks in 90, um, Now, before Showgirls, he ends up doing The Flintstones in 1994. <laughs> and he's not exactly affected by this either because right afterwards, he does The Trigger Effect in 96. And I think that one is with uh, Elizabeth Shue. Directed and written by David Kep, great screenwriter. Yeah, and it's it's a really good film. But It's good. Kyle MacLachlan's had a fantastic career, I think, all the way, you know, even to today. And then <laughs> Gina Gershon um, as Crystal Connors. <laughs> now, before Showgirls, she was in Best of the Best Three, No Turning Back in 1995, yep. which if you want some... I don't know, <laughs> schlocky martial arts directed video stuff. Oh, she was those... Margo. She was Margo, wasn't she? Yeah, she's yeah. uh those those movies are fun. I mean, you get the first one with Eric Roberts just hamming it up, and then you know, two and three, it, it goes a different direction. She does showgirls, but follows showgirls up with an incredible performance in 1996 Bound. Bound. So good. Erotic uh, thriller followed by erotic thriller, right? I mean, yeah, no kidding. But erotic thriller done right. How yes. about that? Yeah. <laughs> You also get Glenn Plummer as James Smith, a.k.a. Creepy Vegas Stalker. This guy gave me the creeps through the whole film. Glenn, Glenn Plummer is an amazing character actor. If you, look at his, if you look at his resume, first of all, he's got a ton of credits, right? Oh, he does. TV, film, all over it. Any big uh, black movie that had come out, South Central, Menace to Society, whatever, you name it, he was in it. Yes. Um, and I just, you know, and he, he's so memorable from Speed. Maurice. Yeah, he's the the Jaguar, the Jaguar guy. guy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wait, actually, this is weird. Um, uh, I for, I for, another shout out that I'd like to bring out uh, for this movie too, for somebody behind the camera, yeah. is the costume designer, Ellen Mirajnik. She is absolutely brilliant. Um, every movie that she does, like I swear to God, I study as like a fashion plate, um, but she just has a ton of credits, a, a perfect murder, um, she was the costume designer for one Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. One of the greatest movies um, ever made. <laughs> uh, Basic Instinct. Um, you know, I think I said failure to launch, but you just Google her credits. She's absolutely amazing as a costume designer. So where I'm going with this is uh, at the same time that Ellen was doing the costumes for this, she was doing the costumes. Her next project simultaneously was Strange Days, which oh. oddly enough, Glenn Plummer is in. He's right. He's a... Uh, uh, Ray finds um no no he's the he's the the, the DJ that got killed Jericho, Jericho one Jericho one. yeah yeah yes. okay he played Jericho one and actually there's a dress that Ju uh, Juliet Lewis wears which is very similar to the dress that the dancers wear it's the it's the little squares um, uh, Nomi is dancing in it in the Vegas scene yeah. where they're dancing mm -hmm. on like the yachts or whatever um, and there's actually uh, the, the Japanese man that they try to pimp her out to he is the client that Angela Bassett is driving in um, Strange Days in the beginning. Do you remember that? The the Asian, the Japanese guy, and then she ends up taking yes. it to yes. yeah. He yeah. ends up, uh, Ray Fiennes Man, that, hijacks the ride and goes- needs to get a special edition release out there. I mean- Strange Days is so good. I Can I have a sidebar too, guys? Yeah. You'll ever on. wonder like what we would remember if we didn't remember all the stuff about movies. Like, could we like solve- world hunger or something like i think no, we could I, rule the world seriously yeah. like, i think like, i'd remember birthdays on a more consistent basis <laughs> <laughs> we're talking we're just pulling up facts about strange days just to know 
top of our heads. And well, like, you start talking oh, about could, him like, oh my god, I, I totally forgot lawyer, about Catherine Bigelow's film. Yeah. And, and yeah. yeah, okay. I so, feel like Rosie Perez and White Man Can't Jump. Right? I'm still yeah. have some useless information. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. The only other ones I want to talk about real quick. We got Robert Davi as Torres, um, Die Hard, 1988. That's all we gotta say. Yep. Um, Bond. He was a Bond villain, right? No, no, no. Die Hard, 1988. That's all we know. <laughs> it's, it's the only, every time you see Robert Davi, I'm like, someone, die hard. Someone said the meanest thing about him that I think I've ever heard in my entire life. Oh, no, and, don't say it. Okay. We got to be nice. You, He's, he was in Die Hard. Are you going to say? I mean, look, I got to tell you, I, I have acne scars, and, and I'm just thankful that Robert Davi... I see him on the screen and I say, you know what? Somebody would take a chance on me or whatever. And besides which he's an excellent actor. He just happens to not really have a smooth complexion, but I, he's memorable. Everything he's yeah. in, I oh, always, I think rem- he's-, he's fantastic. The Fratellis, come on, Goonies. Oh yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> or, yes, yes. Or, oh, or Die, die Hard 1988. <laughs> 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 um, and real quick, Alan Rackins as Tony Moss and Gina Rivera as Molly Abrams, the the one good character. The one good like, character doesn't do anything wrong in the whole film. So and before we talk about, toward. yeah, before we talk about Showgirls, I I, I just kind of wanted to talk about this for a minute. The the erotic thriller. So I find this genre sort of fascinating because it has its roots in film noir. And if you go back and look at it, especially in the 80s, you can see the erotic thriller sort of burgeoning. And it, it is dealing with a lot of film noir tropes. But something happens along the way, obviously, late 80s going into 90s. And so I, I was going back and you can just search and say erotic thriller list of and you get this very, very long list. But what's interesting is when you go back to like 81 with Body Heat the emphasis is more on the mystery and there's a lot of, you know, that that's a true neon noir, right? And you get body double. So De Palma, again, it's more of a thriller. You've got some sex thrown in there, but it's not really the emphasis. It's, it's really about the mystery. It's solving the crime, etc. It's 87. And I don't know what you guys think. 87 is where you start to see this turn in my opinion. And that's with fatal attraction. Yeah, you get Michael Douglas. Michael yeah. Douglas is your turn for way to yeah. go. Yeah. So you get sex. a thriller, but Michael there's Douglas. a lot of emphasis on the sex and it starts to sort of dominate the, I don't know, the national conversation. It's a big hit, but 87 starts to turn into poison Ivy in 1992. So you get Drew Barrymore amping up the sex. You get body of evidence in 92 with Madonna. Yes. You get basic instinct in 92 with Sharon Stone and Joe Esterhaus. And so that I think is the next logical step after uh, fatal attraction. And so you still have those elements of film noir, but really the emphasis and what everybody is going to see the film for are those iconic scenes that are, are really amping up, you know, the, I mean, the sex portion of the film. So I feel like that, that, you know, with film noir, obviously there's, there's a, like a femme fatale, right. But they were, yeah. they were stopped by, um, by like the code and censors from being overtly sexual. And so I think this is this is that reaction. We can have a femme fatale and she can get naked and we can, you know. Um, but I think you're right. I think what was happening, especially with Fatal Attraction was, well, it was weird. These quote unquote erotic thrillers, right? It was either about the dangerous woman that was gonna like kill the man and destroy his entire life, right? 
or, and Esterhaus is somewhat responsible for this, if you look at Jagged Edge and Music Box, um, the flip side of that is a woman who is then attracted to a man who may or may not be crazy and may or may not be killing people. And it's sort of like, what do I do with that? Like that information, he's so hot and hunky and I want him, but, but maybe he's a criminal. And actually, if you, if you look at Jagged Edge and Music Box, um, I don't want to give it away, but you remember how there was always, there was an instrument or something, yes. and then there would be that one little bing, and then it's like, boom, he is the killer, right? Yeah, so I mean. But you, you, get a, you get a play on that a little bit in the 90s where you start to see the femme fatale and they're really taking charge. Yeah. They're, they're using sexual, you know, they're using sexuality as a weapon to a certain degree. And you get this motif that starts to pop up and you see some some familiar faces sort of gravitating to the material. Right. So you get Basic Instinct, Boxing Helena in 93, which I think is interesting, but Joe Esterhaus and Sharon Stone strike again together with Sliver, and we talked about that. Yep. I, I thought this was funny, that same year, Hexed comes out in 93 with Claudia <laughs> Christian, which is the, I don't know, the, the naked gun version of, of an erotic thriller. Right. Um, but then here's another name that starts to pop up, uh, I would say kind of in the mid 90s, Demi Moore, Indecent Proposal in 93. Um, then you get Intersection in 94 with Sharon Stone again. Color yeah, of Night. She's, believe it or not, she's the straight player in yeah. that one. She was the wife that was cheated on. Right. But she's she's obviously picking some material because, you know, as a, as a studio, you go, oh, erotic thriller or thriller. Let me, let me bring Stone. Sharon Stone into it <laughs> right. because now, you know, she's she's sort of attached to that genre. Um, Bruce Willis jumps in in 94, Color Night. Demi Moore and Michael Douglas pop up in 94 for Disclosure. Sharon Stone shows up in 94 with Sylvester Stallone doing The Specialist, which is Stallone dipping his toes into <laughs> the erotic movie. thriller with James what Woods. What a great movie. <laughs> yeah. Now, if, if you read any kind of criticism, et cetera, about this sort of erotic thriller phase that was going in from like 87 to the 90s, a lot of people credit Showgirls in 95 as sort of the, the death of it or the nail in the coffin. I don't think so. Mm. Because in 95, um, you also get Jade. We talked about that one from Joe Esterhaus. Demi Moore pops up in 95 with The Scarlet Letter. She also pops up in 96 with Striptease. 96, you also get Bound with Gina Gershon. Wild Things is in 98. I think it starts to really die off in 1999 with Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes wide to shut. me, that is the one that it came out. The sex is, in, is sort of center. It's the topic of the conversation. Everything post that, it, it doesn't have, and I, I'm really struggling to articulate it, it doesn't have the craziness of these films where sex was what they were trying to sell but keep you going along with a thriller plot to stay interested. Right. But it was just, you know, like a Kung Fu film, you're going to see, oh, when is the fight gonna break out? You look at some of these films, it's like, well, here's the story. And then you're going to see, well, when is the sex gonna break out? So- What year was, um, what year was like uh, Original Sin, Antonio Banderas? Ooh, that was like 2001 or something like that. Yeah, it, it doesn't I go away. I call that an erotic thriller. It yeah, does. It, but it, but the, the wave of it, I think, is your point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah you, so. you, get, you sort of get its highlight within that mid-90s. Um, and what's funny is there, there's a couple of good essays out there. Um, writer Rachel Verona Cote, she did this personal edit, essay where she just went through and watched nothing but erotic thrillers. And she has this quote Lucky where <laughs> she says, 
though well aware that this male conceived genre served as a vehicle to tell horror stories of female independence, I was nonetheless entranced by these women who seemed so unburdened by emotion. And it's, you look at these topics and you look at the plots and I don't know how many of these you've seen, but there's something that sticks out. Strong, powerful women and sex was selling during that time period. But the other thing that they were also selling was the dangers of strong, powerful women. Um, and it's, I, I don't know, it, it's so weird. But the other thing I find kind of weird is if you look at 87 specifically, and let's say 99 with Eyes Wide Shut is when the frequency starts to go down a little bit. There are two things that stick out in my head. The first of which is in 97, do you know what film comes out there that I think sort of changes the landscape altogether? It's a big one. The erotic thriller? No, I, I think oh. it affected the erotic thriller. It's 1997's Titanic, James Cameron. I think that hits in such wow. a way. Okay. But, but wow. think of it this way, is that that is such a big film. If you have something like Basic Instinct and those films that are making all the money because it's sex sells, then you get to Titanic and it's more of, there's a romantic, I don't want to call it puritanical, but you know, it's the erotic thriller is losing its box office luster because Titanic made so much money. The other thing to consider is George H. W. Bush was... <laughs> was in office from 89 to 93. Then comes along Bill Clinton from 93 to 2001. You got the height of the erotic thriller, in my opinion. Then George W. Bush comes Slip out lick. in 2001, 2009. You can really- it down. Yeah, but I mean, you see Titanic around it. To me, it, it reminds me of when we were talking about the war film and we were talking about the beast at the beginning of the year. And Hollywood had, you know, I, I don't want to say glamorized, but War was just another action film up until Platoon came out. And then all of a sudden that dialogue shifted. I'm not saying that presidents shifted our dialogue of the erotic thriller, but I think it's kind of funny that when Bill Clinton is president, you're starting starting to get this sort of height of the erotic thriller and all of the stuff that's going on. Then Monica. Titanic comes out and, you know, George W. Bush comes in. It's like our, our puritanical side kicks in. And we go, oh, we don't like the boobies anymore. We kind of like the romance. Well, when, when did you all get the internet? <laughs> <laughs> right? No, that's I true. Mean, yeah. You used I mean, to have to go to the movies to see things like that. And true, then true. in 2000, 2001, 2002, that stuff's a little bit more readily available. Um, I, you know, honestly, I think, Troy, I think the best example to back up your point here is when you guys were talking about The Last Action Hero and how the reason why it failed was the liberals took me away or, or yeah. what have you, right? Because the political landscape had changed. We didn't want to see all wow, of that that's a deep cut. Anymore. Thank you for listening to our episodes. I was like, that was <laughs> we, deep. Thank oh, you. Thank you. oh, I've been diving in. Wow. I think I'm, uh, I've listened to a lot of them actually. Wow. <laughs> no, that's, that's a good point. Cause I found that fascinating when I was reading Schwarzenegger's biography and he talks about that film, he points to the political landscape. And I, I know that that has something to do with the product of Hollywood. Yeah, But it, it's very interesting, again, when you go back and you look at all of these films that were coming out and I'm, I, we, we still have attempts at the erotic thriller with uh, Fifty Shades of Grey yeah, and, and some of those films. But Gone Girl, you consider Gone Girl an erotic thriller? Well, that's- the, I would definitely call that an erotic okay, thriller. Yeah. I, I would, yeah. but I, I, I would say it like this. There is something when you look at Gone Girl, I would kind of put it in that genre of um, body heat, body double. Something happens with Fatal Attraction where 
the thrills and the thriller and in that film noir portion of it it was front and center and the sex was a part of the story but it wasn't center stage there was a period in time with our films especially in these 90s leading up showgirls was just going to happen in my opinion yeah like it, it was the natural evolution if you go fatal attraction then basic instinct we were going to get a showgirls i mean cinemax had to fill up a lot of time at night man that's right it was but i mean <laughs> gotta to get your point, we, <laughs> we, you know instead of netflix and chill it was blockbuster and chill right so you go rent a film and and take it home but it, it's interesting, and I don't know if there's a correlation. I'm sure somebody much smarter than me would look at this and then look at our political social landscape and go, hey, Bill Clinton is in office. Look at all the stuff that was going on um, at that time from our, I don't know, social acceptance. And look what kind of movies are coming out. It, yeah. it, again, I am fascinated with the fact that with Bill Clinton as our president, the American movie going public, it was assumed that they were fascinated with strippers and showgirls. Because you had Demi Moore, you know, doing striptease that was chasing right after Showgirls. Hollywood was trying to tap into something that it saw within that social landscape at that point. Yeah. Valid point. Valid point. Do you have a, a favorite erotic thriller? I know for you, it's probably show. Well, let me ask you this. Basic instinct. <laughs> is it basic instinct? It's I would basic say instinct. basic instinct is mine too. Yeah, that's probably. Like I said, I've never, I've never seen an. I've never seen an audience since I go to the movies a lot, um, you know, scream with fear and sort of delight during the sex scenes in basic instinct. Like I, I, people were screaming actually when she uncrossed her legs, I remember somebody in my screening was like, <gasps> like they were just like, they gasped, <gasps> you know? And I yeah. was like, wow, that's amazing. She just controlled the room by uncrossing her legs. It's Basic great. Instinct is an interesting film. I mean, it 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 did not bomb at all. No, it's the was the highest rated R-rated <laughs> film of all time for a long period of time. But yeah, not it, with a lot of controversy. Um, you know, it's funny, uh the the lesbian and gay community had like protested the shoots. Oh yeah. And they had suggested rewrites. And the rewrites that they had suggested were super interesting because it's sort of like they were trying to make it so that the bisexuality or the lesbianism wasn't the reason that they were committing the violence or doing the you know shenanigans. But it's, I don't know, when I look at it, I'm like, well, why can't gay people be just as crazy and murderous and homicidal as like straight people? Like it's, it's, it's a fantasy, you know? Yeah, because people are people, right? In the end, when you break down what happens in basic instinct, it doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. It hinges on way too many coincidences. Yes, it does. It's really just an homage to um, Vertigo and Hitchcock. <laughs> it is. Really. And, and I, that's probably why I wouldn't pick it as my, I, I would appreciate something more like Bound. Like I love Bound. I think yeah. that is a fantastic, if, if that's the erotic thriller to me out of this list, that's probably my favorite because I think the story is so good and it's so interesting. And those performances are fantastic. Now, Sharon Stone owns Basic Instinct. You cannot deny that. But I think... Um, Tilly and Gershon and, and Bound just light up the screen. They're, they're just, they're so charismatic and sexy and that everything about that film just works for me. You know, Troy, fun fact, um, Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly, they became friends obviously after, obviously after Bound. Um, I'd become <laughs> friends with her too. Um, but apparently it was Gina Gershon who had suggested Ronnie Yu or, or said to her, you know, Ronnie Yu directed Bride of Chucky 
and Gina was like, you have got to see The Bride with White Hair. Oh my God. Um, because it's, it, that's a Ronnie Yu film. Yes, and it's, it's so stylized. And it, I mean, literally he just took what that looked like and put it on Bride of Chucky. And since US audiences had never seen anything like that, it was like, oh, mind blown. And it's like, oh really? You're not watching Hong Kong cinema because exactly. yep. Ronnie's everything, been doing everything this comes, for years. All the good stuff comes from <laughs> Hong Kong cinema. Right. Um, well, before we talk about the film, I, I think we mentioned a couple of things about Showgirls. So it had its huge success on the home video market, 100 million from video rentals. It swept that year at the 16th annual Razzie Awards. Of course yes. it did. And the interesting thing about it was Paul Verhoeven actually turned up to accept Worst Director and Worst Picture. And at that time, no director had ever done that before. And this, so this one, I, I read it and I kind of challenge it. So as of 2009, Showgirls is the highest grossing NC-17 of all time. And the only NC-17 film to even be given wide distribution which was 1,388 theaters, but I think that number is wrong. The reason why I questioned this was uh, specifically a film in 1972, Marlon Brando, The Last Tango in Paris. I thought that had a bigger box office and it was NC-17 as well. Or was it was it X-ray? X. They hadn't created, oh, okay. they hadn't created it's the NC-17. It's a technicality. Yeah. Got it. All right. So it is, so it, it made 36 million. So it didn't, and that was domestic. So domestic, um, Showgirls did 20, 20, but different rating scale. Okay. That makes sense now. Thanks. Yeah. So the, um, I think that was the holdover from like, you know, deep throat and then pornography moving out of the mainstream theaters. And then that was still the holdover. The, the MPAA didn't have anything to rate an adult like class or film like that. I think the first NC 17 film was, um, Henry and June. Was that it? I think if you research it, that might've been the first, uh, NC 17 film. Um, that sounds right. I, I always think of NC-17 of that one. And is it The Thief, The Wife, Her... The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Yeah, that one. Peter Greenaway's film. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which you should watch because when y'all were talking about Judge Dredd and how that was really just an allegory for Thatcherism, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover is a response to that, a cinematic response to that. So and we should pair Judge Dredd with that one? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Although okay. The Cook is off the chain. The Cook is... The cook is off the chain. I remember having to sneak into that somehow. That's funny. Well, listen, hey, it's it's time to talk about this cinematic monster <clears throat> movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> some people call it a masterpiece. Some people call it art, trash, whatever. Whatever. I mean, I I have a feeling all three of us are probably going to uh, just end up in a different space when we do a deep dive in this one. But I'm curious on your guys's uh, thoughts on 1995 Showgirls. So, Jose, I'm I don't know if you can go back to the first time you saw it because this is the first time Brad and I ha have seen it. But what's your just initial reaction? Do you remember your initial reaction when you saw Showgirls? Um, so going back to my bizarro connection with Paul Verhoeven movies. Um, so at the time I was I was in college. Um, I knew friends who were strippers, men and women. Um, I had a couple friends who actually were in the porn industry. Um, at the time I was doing gymnastics, I was dancing. Um, I wanted to be a stunt performer. So it was all about like performing and things like that. Um, and so when I saw it, I bought into the fact that it was a drama. I didn't really see it as an erotic thriller. I bought into it as a drama ostensibly about a woman who, 
you know, is running from something. She's starting over in a completely, you know, different crazy place where she knows she can find her niche. Um, she's passionate about dance. She responds to it almost like it's, it's part of her. Um, so, you know, she's watching Goddess the first time and she's already mimicking the moves and it's like this swell of like sensuality to her. Um, and, and I bought into that. I bought into following her as sort of like an underdog and wanting to get what she wants and being kind of Machiavellian about it. You know, these are the limits that I'm going to go to. Maybe I don't even know my limits, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to get the job. Um, and, and, you know, that's what I really... When I first saw it, that's what I really kind of bought into. Um, but you bought, course, in, the you bought into it as amazing. a drama. As a drama as and a as drama. a musical. Um, okay. I think you and I talked about this before too. I think it's a, um, you know, for me, a musical, anytime like something, somebody starts dancing and it's sort of like, for lack of a better term, infects other people and they start dancing too. And it's sort of like, oh, you know, the dance moves, what's going on? Um, I do see this as a musical, like a musical drama as well. Um, In interviews with Verhoeven, he talks about his excitement to work on a musical because I think yeah. he saw this as a musical as well. Yep. Uh, growing up, he loved those musicals, the Busley, Busby, right. Berkeley. You see that in that number where she slips on the, on the, the diamonds that Annie, uh, I'm sorry, Julie throws down. That's the, the, the wedding that's the sequence very, or something is what it looks yeah, like. Yeah, it's like a wedding or she's like going up to heaven or something right. like that. Um, but that's very big, very big Busby Berkeley. And of course the sexuality of it, right? Are, you know, does Crystal, does Crystal want her? Does she want to sleep with her? Is she a rival? She's trying to take her out. You know, uh, that whole amb ambivalence between the two of them and yet it being this rivalry. Yeah. I, I dug it, totally dug it. So you dug but, it right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. But you know, obviously even just, just looking at it now, I think what's great about this movie is it, it's very polarizing. Like people either love it or they hate it. And there's not, honestly, if you think about it, there's not a lot of movies that do that, right? I mean, you know, the only thing I can think of right now off the top of my head is like Aronofsky's mother. Um, you know, that's one movie where people watch it and it's like, I hated it. I don't understand what's happening, I, you know, whatever. And then the other people see it, they see the sort of art in it, the analogy, the allegory, and they say, they see the Bible. wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They see the Bible. Um, and they're just like, wow, this is, this is sort of brilliant. And I think the reason why Showgirl still sticks around is because it can be seen on a bunch of different levels. Um, so you know, cheering on an underdog who turns out to be an anti-hero. I mean, the trend now is all of these like follow the anti-hero, right? These characters, these characters or personalities are not very likable. And yet you're, you know, beyond all measure, you're rooting for them, you know, because everybody else is just as corrupt or horrible. But on another level, I think what, what Verhoeven was trying to do was just like in Spetters, um, he was trying to shine a light on, you know, young people rebelling against, uh, society trying to conform them, these kinds of pressures, um, the church, religion, things like that. Um, I think what Esther Haas and Verhoeven were trying to say here was that, you know, there is a lot of corruption that comes with power, that people get so greedy that they just see people as the bottom line or as props to get to the next level. 
And um, I think they were, you know, it's specifically set in Vegas, I think, for a reason, because in Vegas, you know, anything can happen. Prostitution is legal. It's like it's Sin City, right? So, you know, I think they were saying something about how the higher you get, the more corrupt, the more greedy you get, the more you seem to think people are just tools, you can use them. Um, the movie is very much, there's a lot of cinematic flourish comparing one thing to the other, right? So the cheetah is just a low rent version of what's happening at the, the Stardust, goddess. right? So yeah, Robert Davi, Al, you know, you're gonna give me a blow job, you know, that kind of thing. And there's like this close knit family. And at the Stardust, it's just the same thing, but it's dressed up with a different artifice. It's superficial. You've got people saying one thing to, to your face and then doing another, like with Kyle McLaughlin, when he was like, Phil Newkirk, how dare you do this? Apologize to know me. You know, he, you know, she leaves and then he calls on, calls him on the phone and he's like, get up here, you dumb fuck. <laughs> and he's like laughing over it or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, reevaluating that in the context of like me too, and then especially with what we've gone through with like George Floyd, some of the imagery in this, uh, you know, it has renewed uh, energy in terms of re-examining it. So- In terms of its social commentary. In terms of its social, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, if you also look at the black characters, so there's three of them, there's James, there's Molly, and then there's Annie. Um, you know, Annie gets her knee broken and, you know, there's a very distinct image that he does. Of course, he mixes it with religiosity, which is, you know, he did religious images in The Fourth Man and even wrote a book about Jesus. I don't know if you know this, Ver Verhoeven wrote a book about like Jesus. What? Yeah, he was very deep into like religious studies. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Huh. He also has a degree in like physics and math. And then he was like, oh, I'm going to make, no, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna, make, I'm not gonna imitate him anymore. <laughs> Let me stop from imitating. And he's like, oh, I'm, good, I'm gonna make movies. And he went to Dutch film school and he's like, I'm not learning anything. And he quit. And then here he is, he's like this, you know, great director. Um, but you know, Annie, her knee gets broken and she's sitting there on the ground crying. And here's, you know, Crystal, white lady going up to heaven, right? While the black people are, you know, being oppressed. And then James, you know, unfortunately he's, he's just as sort of like greedy and prone to using people to get to where he wants to, but he's streetwise. He sees right through Nomi's act. He's like, you're running from yourself. I, you know, dancing ain't fucking, you got like things to learn or whatever. And he gives it to her. He's one of the more knowledgeable people about the landscape of Las Vegas, right? And he tries to actually help her and he gets a bum deal too. He gets Hope pregnant. Um, he ends up saying, I'm gonna quit all of this and go to a grocery store. And then of course, Molly, you know, she gets raped. I mean, her and Nomi's relationship is the sweetest, the, the purest relationship. She opens up her house to her, takes her in, you know, um, cares for her, tries to get her the job. And then what happens? She gets this horrible thing put upon her. She gets raped. Um, and that is what becomes the redemption arc for Nomi, right? She's like, you hurt my friend each rung of the ladder that I've gone up, I've I've sort of chipped away pieces of my soul by stepping on people, doing what I gotta do to get up there. But this is, this is the final step. I can't be a part of this. I can't be part of this, let's cover it up because you know I could make more money later when Andrew Carver comes to the Stardust and then she kicks the living shit out of that guy. Um, and then she's gotta leave town. But the, you know that's her redemption arc and 
I read a recent interview with Gina Rivera and she, to this day, she's very traumatized by doing that scene. She said that that scene took nine hours. Oh my God. That um, it's a Yahoo interview. I found it. it was from September, 2020. It was nine hours. It was brutal for her emotionally. She said that Verhoeven talked to her about it, but didn't really prepare her for the level of sort of physical violence. Um, she even claims that in this interview that Verhoeven kept pushing the actors, get closer, get crazier. Your man, you're, 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 you're an animal, you're, you're ripping her apart. She said that she actually got hit by the actor William Shockley um, in the jaw and that her jaw was never right for years after filming that. Um, and that she, she has only seen the movie once. She walked out during the rape scene um, and she specifically did not take certain roles where she was an abused victim because she didn't want to be known like that. But yeah. another we'll saying that again. Yeah. Another salient point of it, though, is that she says that Verhoeven took her aside and said, listen, you know, you got to you got to show up for this role because I understand for you, it's hard as a black actress. You're not you're not getting a crystal role. You're not getting a Nomi role, but you really need to show up for this because you're you're you know, you're a support rock for for Nomi and you're the reason why she gets redeemed and she does what she does. Um, and Rivera has a very strong opinion about that. She did not agree with the fact that you never get to see a resolution of Molly getting better. She, the last time you see her, she's still doped up on drugs. She's out of it. She's bruised. You get and the nurse saying she's going to be fine. That's it. That's it. You know, yeah. and, and Rivera said, I didn't like being hung out like that. I, I disagree with that. Um, and I think she had a falling out with Verhoeven over the way that that was depicted. I could definitely see that. Yeah. So Brad, um, I'm not sorry. Yeah. I was just like, no, no, no. Are you, so I, just I have to right follow now. that. Okay, I'm great. not following Thanks. that. Thanks. Great. Thanks, <laughs> Cause <clears throat> that was amazing. And so <clears throat> I'm curious now, keep in mind, Brad and I are coming to this, not seeing it in the context of the release. And I'm a moron. So <laughs> no, not <laughs> true. But one of the things I struggle with, and I'll, I'll let you kind of, I'm really curious what your reaction is, Brad, because you, you watched it in two settings. It wasn't a, you know, a straight setting all the way through. But we're coming at it with the notoriety of the film and the film sort of taking on two lives. It became this box office bomb that was an erotic thriller, very drama oriented. And then later on, everybody sort of rediscovers it as trash, you know, that is fun to watch. And there's midnight screenings and one of the best worst movies ever. So I'm curious what your take is, Brad, knowing that, okay, we're seeing this when it really has two identities within the film community. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I want to say, I think this is one of the more daring movies I've ever seen. Obviously, I mean, it's NC-17, so like they're obviously taking chances. But if you look at it, you can say, oh, this is like, I, I thought when I was going into it, oh, this is going to be like a sports movie, someone coming into Vegas, you know, conquering Vegas and leaving. And obviously that's not it. And, 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 the one lasting image I have of this movie is like, I think there's a lot of, I want to say, oh, there's a lot of poor decisions made. Look at Kyle McLaughlin's hair. And that'll just let you know <laughs> that there's a lot of poor decisions made. But then I started thinking about it and like, it kind of started hitting to me. And I guess this, this is the Verhoeven part of it is, is when you start to kind of examine what is actually going on in the movie, 
it's obviously way more than just people naked on screen, right? I mean, it's got to be because if it if it was just that, I don't think it would have stand up to a lot of the examinations that people put under it. Um, you know, is is the American dream a fallacy, or um, you know, do men really control the world? You know, like all these things that like this movie is coming to show you, like it's saying a lot of things. Um, now, do I like the kind of overarching story that, you know, goes along with all these kind of uh, themes and tropes that I have a little bit harder to time to deal with. Um, I do like the dancing a lot. I think, you know, as someone who can't dance at all, seeing people <laughs> like in coordinated dances is, is, is pretty impressive, but I, I can't, I can't get behind Elizabeth Berkeley very much in this movie. I think she sucks um, to be perfectly blunt. I, I mean, if Berthoven is saying that's how I directed her, that's fine. Um, it's either bad direction or she's not very good, but you know, it has stuck with me in a weird way and not in the ways I thought it would like, I, you know, there is a lot going on. And again, if it was a director that I think I didn't respect as much as Verhoeven, I'm, I might not give it the benefit of the doubt, but I know him and I know the kind of films he makes. Um, Starship, Starship Troopers is not a perfect movie, but it's saying a lot of things. Um, and the twist of that movie is perfect. It's like chef's kiss, like perfect. Um, this, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I just like stand out. Like maybe Jose at some point in time will, will tell me why she hitchhikes with the guy at the beginning. And it's the same guy at the end. Like, what is that all about? You know, like I know she's going to a new city to try it again, but it's just like weird things like that. That's just those things like that take me out of kind of the overarching things that I really want to think about. Um, so yeah, so I, I rambling because I think there's just so much of this movie that I think is works for me and so much that doesn't, um, that they're just kind of butting heads. And I, I wish it worked for me more because I know there's a lot going on long and short of it so yeah you and i <laughs> talked a lot in that even before we jumped on here to just have this discussion we were struggling with what to do with our notes because i think you were in the same spot we had a lot of notes first time watch and it is very hard to articulate or put this thing in some type of sequential order that you could talk about it from a i guess a film criticism or even talk about your experience with it and try to be organic and not be influenced by the things that people are telling you what's going on. And, and that's, that's the hardest part. This film has so much history. There's been documentaries about it. There's been tons of criticism about it. And if you dive into it, you can, if you do all of that research and homework, and, and I think I did that uh, before watching it a little bit, you'll go into this with you know these voices in the back of your head saying, you should be taking this film in this fashion. And it's a, it's a social commentary this way, or it's just a lot of fun and it's a really trashy, bad film. So I have all these different voices trying to champion this thing. But the funny thing about it was every time I would read something from a positive perspective, it was never the same thing. Everybody has a different reason of why they love this film. It's all over the place. Some people pick on it for the social criticism and sort of the female empowerment and what it's saying about their experiences in the world in general, especially within like the entertainment industry. 
Other people are looking at it and saying the dialogue is so atrociously bad and funny, you can't help but laugh. And my wife and I laughed a lot of times during this film because it was like, I, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> and then there are other people who can, who can just really commend it from a technical perspective and go look at Verhoeven's filmography and it for, fits perfectly within it. But it is so incredible when you read all of that stuff and then sit down to watch it. I still don't know exactly what I think about it because as soon as I was done, I had totally forgotten about all the people telling me of how I should appreciate this thing and found myself going, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of this, but it's something. And I, I think there's a lot going on here. And I, and the thing that is the most unforgettable piece of it for me is actually Elizabeth Berkeley. She is at the center of this thing. And I don't care if you think that she puts in the worst performance. I don't think you you can say that honestly i don't care if you think it's the best performance you've ever seen i 100 will say it is the most unforgettable performance <laughs> that is out there by a female lead and you can call it daring you can call it schlocky trash art whatever it is at, at the end of the day it's still unforgettable and my favorite thing and i cannot remember the film critic who wrote this but it, it is it sums up exactly what i think of her performance this film critic said that Nomi is Yosemite Sam with tits. <laughs> That's amazing. And as soon as I have that image, the rootin' tootin', you know, <laughs> Yosemite <laughs> Sam walking in, you know, that's the mentality of that character where it's just walking, it's walking chaos and that chaos is walking into a level of chaos that even exceeds what she brings into it. And I find that totally fascinating. There's just this thing about her. She's dialed up to 11 in every scene. She's, she's absolutely aggressive. Even when she's doing things like trying to put a straw in a cup or eat a hamburger, <laughs> it's just with such intensity. And you, I look now that I open a bag I, of chips, I've never yeah. seen someone just so aggressively open a bag of chips. And now I fries. Yeah. <laughs> and I think of like Yosemite Sam as a Vegas showgirl. That's exactly what I'm watching <laughs> it, it going on. I mean, the, the only thing that doesn't look aggressive is when she does the switchblade thing. That's the most unaggressive thing ever. Oh, I actually feel surprised. like she's going to cut herself <laughs> when she does it. But um, I, I kind of want to start with that because that's where I gravitate when somebody is like, well, what did you think of showgirls? I would go Elizabeth Berkeley. That's all I got to say that that's my opinion of showgirls is it all hinges on her. And I, and that's the stuff I take away from it. So again, I can't figure out if it's good, bad or, or whatever is going on, but it's unforgettable in my opinion. What I so, also, oh, God. I, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say the other thing that I find unforgettable, and it's kind of contrary to something I think you alluded to, Jose, is that she is this walking chaos. So she's the she's the Vegas showgirl Yosemite Sam walking in. Um, <laughs> I don't feel like there's any character progression at all. And really? Absolutely, because she is a bundle of chaos. So Brad, you were asking why does it start with her being picked up with a you know the same guy in the beginning of the film at the end of it. I think there's a reason to that. I think she as a character doesn't progress at all, but her character withstands that next level of chaos. So I don't think that's character progression. I, I, she makes that comment about she finds herself at the end of it, but I, I don't necessarily buy, buy it. 
she, <laughs> she was opportunistic. She found a reason to go beat up the guy at the end. Um, I, I don't, like I said, I, I don't think there's character progression. I don't know what the big reveal of her past means. Um, outside of, you now know why she's sensitive when somebody calls her a hooker, but whore. outside of, whore. <laughs> or a whore. Yeah. But outside of that, I don't, I don't think she changes. I think she survives what she goes through. And, um, I, if that's the case, and again, I think it's debatable. I think people can look at this and go, she finds a redemption. She goes through story arc. I didn't find that. I actually looked at who she was at the beginning of the film and who she was when she left and she survived. She didn't, she didn't go through character arc. She just survived that mess. And if, if survival is character progression, I don't think it is. And I almost think that makes it kind of a tragedy where Verhoeven is kind of saying, women are going through this on a daily basis and all they're doing is surviving and they're not progressing. Lining up for the next exploitation. I think that's really what they were going for. And especially to, to couch it in the showbiz industry where everything is superficial. Um, you know, I think you're right. I mean, you are sort of right about that, but I would posit to you that surviving an event can be the character progression right but um, i don't think that's progression i mean even if you're talking about like the the rape incident and and even the actress who says you know she's suffering some some form of ptsd afterwards i think that's what that movie is trying to say and again i, I think it's debatable she survives it and then where she's going she's going to los angeles right so i i do think it's one of those where it's a hey look you as an entertainer or somebody who wants to play within this realm, you had to go through all of this stuff and okay, you weren't corrupted or you didn't take that deal, et cetera. But guess what? The next city you go to Los Angeles, you're going to go through it all again. So what progression is there? Like I said, I find that kind of tragic a little bit. Um, and the only way to survive is to be the Yosemite Sam of entertainers. Dude. Just go out there rooting. <laughs> I'm never going to look at her the same now. Oh, I'm just no. going to see I, I, I'm serious. I wish I could find <laughs> the, the critic who said that because as soon as I read that, I'm like, oh my God, that's just perfect because Yosemite Sam and the whole Bugs Bunny thing, I mean, when he just walks into a scene, he owns the scene. Forget yeah. a Bugs Bunny for a second. <laughs> Yosemite Sam is a fantastic character but he, he just is who he is. And that's how I feel Nomi is at the beginning of the film and the end of the film. So, yeah, I do. I totally see your point. And just, just so you know, they were going to make a sequel and it was going to be called Bimbos. I am not lying about this. It was oh going to be God. called Bimbos and she was going to be in Las Vegas doing the exact same stuff, right? Um, and even the ending of it, you know, you see the, the billboard that says Nomi, you know, is goddess. And then just behind that, it says Los Angeles, 240 miles or whatever. So you are right about that. I mean, and, and you know, my husband even said, well, she had to leave because she killed that guy, <laughs> right? And they were going to come and get her. Um, but the, but that, and that would, again, I would point to that of saying there's no character progression because isn't she on the run? I mean, she's coming from the East Coast because of all the stuff that she's done. So she's just leaving a wake of destruction in her path per se. Yeah, it's sort yeah, of- Yeah, the one good of, person in her life, Molly, is like, you know, got raped. Yeah. And she no, left so her there. Yeah, she left her. <laughs> yeah. She left her. Um, you know, it's it, it's strange. They, um, you know, Berkeley's performance, um, 
you know, her whole past, right? So when Tony Moss calls her Pollyanna, the reason why she's like, what did you say? It's because that was her name, Polly Ann Costello, right? right? Um, that was her like, you know, real name. And it's weird what they do with that reveal of her secret past. They just sort of throw it out like a couple lines, right? Oh, busted for, you know, whatever, prostitution and drugs or this and that. And then she hawks the biggest loogie I have ever seen in the history of cinema yeah, on like disgusting. Kyle's face. I'm like, that had never happened in COVID. That was the and, super no soaker of loogies, man. It was like- I'm like, did she, did they give her tea? Did she put a Sour Patch Kid in her mouth? Like, I, I'm amazed at it's how amazing much special came effects, out. I'll tell you that. Right. Um, <laughs> But like, they, it's weird that they don't even really do anything with that reveal, but Verhoeven's direction of Berkeley about that performance, the reason why she acts that way is because she was a former addict, that she had to scrounge and survive and turn tricks for $50 or what have you. Um, but the way that I saw it was, you know, when you see her on stage, she's the same way. I mean, she's practically like ah, attacking the air. The ADR is hysterical too. Like if you if you listen during the dance scenes, like you can just imagine Elizabeth Berkeley, like, you know, doing these like, ah, mm, <laughs> you know, making these sounds, but like, just go back and listen, you'll hear yeah. it. It's like weird. Can you imagine that ADR session? Right, <laughs> anyway, um, but she's the same way off stage as she is on stage. So that's how I took it. And I mean, if you've hung around actors, you know, you know those people who are always on, right? Like they're in the grocery store, they're on. They're on stage, it's the same thing, right? So that's that's kind of how I saw it, why she was always cranked up to the 11 is because she's a performer. Like that's what she wants to do. That's her big dream. And I, and I, I would, like I said, I would probably, <laughs> And again, I almost, can I agree with Brad's assessment of she's terrible, but say it's because she's so terrible, she's great in it? it yeah. That's the weirdest thing to say. I mean, yeah, it is. But, you know, this is, this is how Verhoeven works. He works in this weird dichotomy, right? Where somebody, one of his characters, look at any of his movies. Some of his characters operate in this weird gray zone where they, they commit an action and it's both innocent and sinister at the same time, right? So if you look back through his entire filmography, you'll see characters acting ambivalent like that. Um, and that's why I'm saying, you know, Spetters is very much like the American version. I'm sorry, Spetter, Showgirls is the American version of Spetters. So, right. it, you know, in Spetters, there was a blonde femme fatale who, um, you know, she wanted to move out of the working class get away from selling these snacks at this whatever. So she aligns herself with this man who she thinks is gonna be a motocross superstar, but he ends up breaking his hip, like the girl who hurts herself as a dancer. And then she hooks herself up with another person, right? And in that movie, a man is brutally raped as well. Um, it's a very explicit scene, um, but there's a lot of parallels between what happens in Spetters with Showgirls. And I think he just was trying to do that but it's so hyperbolic and so exaggerated. I mean, Verhoeven himself even called it like new expressionism, um, <laughs> but it's it's almost so overwhelming that it turns people off. And I, I mean, yeah. I can completely see that. It's like, you know, the first time I saw Natural Born Killers, I went home with a huge headache. I was like, what did I just, ah, yee, you know? But it's a brilliant film, um, but maybe that's the whole point is to sort of overload you with this, 
griminess, you know, and this, this sort of like seedy dirtiness, that's pretty on the surface, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's why it, it's such a compelling movie to continue to watch. And it's just not relegated to the dollar 99 bin and forgotten. I, I agree with that. I, I mean, in the flip side to that is now that I see her as Yosemite Sam, <laughs> Crystal is is the perfect Bugs Bunny of that relationship, especially <laughs> in her relation. And I know I'm probably stretching here, but out of all the the people in the film, I feel like Gina is the one is the only person in the film that understands what the film is. Yeah, and she plays it dramatic, but she is a great foil to um, Nomi. And and when if you kind of buy into okay, Nomi is the Yosemite Sam. And you go back and look at Crystal's response to all of that. It it feels like a Bugs Bunny response in some of these scenes. But I'll, the other thing that I I got from Gina was I felt like she was channeling Gloria Swanson from Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. And I really liked her performance. I, I actually feel like Gina classes up the film um, on a whole new level with just having her in these scenes. The, the only problem I have probably with her performance and Elizabeth Berkeley is there's so much teeth in this. Like they're saying their lines through their teeth. And yeah, I, I can't, when I do that, I you can't understand <laughs> what I'm saying, but when they do it, you know, it, uh, whew, it is oddly like very focused on their teeth when they talk. Now it that is. you said that, I can't. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, their teeth and they give their lines or, you know, with, but here's the thing is, you know, Elizabeth Berkeley does it and she shows her teeth and it's scary. And Gina Gershon does it. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's Gloria Swanson-ish from Sunset Boulevard. But it's classy. I mean, if, if you're like teeth showing in, in forms of dialogue, I don't know. Is there a technical name for that, Jose, when you're giving your lines through your teeth? Gina Gershon should teach a class in it because so. she's really good in it. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, you know, the, the, I think the central thesis of the whole movie can just be boiled down to that scene where they're in, they're, they're having lunch and, oh my God. you know, Gina Gershon I'm... is, is saying, you know, you and I are exactly alike. We're all whores. We take the money, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see, you know? Um, but that, I think, you know, the whole thesis of the film boils down to that scene. Uh, the, We're going to talk about that scene them. in detail. Um, Brad, I want to ask you about the dialogue of the film. What what did you think about Esther House's script Oof. writing and everything going on through the film? There was some things said in this movie that natural people do not say to each other. And I was trying to write it down. And then at some point in time, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be rewriting this whole movie. So I'm just going to stop. I, I got some for you. Yeah. You got your arm straight out saying, back off, motherfucker. Or... Um, Everybody got AIDS and shit. Bitch, yes. I'm telling you the truth. truth yes. <laughs> yes. Here are some of my favorites, and I'm, I'm going to try and uh, keep them clean, right? So, mm. Okay, Dad. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> you, no, no, no. I, I just I think it's funny when you try and keep them clean. So here's one. You having sex with him without having sex with him, that ain't right. So you have to replace <laughs> the having sex with him. You with effing oh. without effing yeah. him. That's what you do. Um <laughs> I love this response when she accuses, uh, oh gosh, I totally forgot his name. The, um, uh, da, 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 Glenn, Glenn Plummer. So he yeah. plays J James, right? James. 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 Okay. So she's, she's on his case and James says, well, I have a problem with the, the women's organ. Yeah. Yes. I always have. I'm always gonna. 
Um, and Robert Davi, this is this was the one that I, my wife and I just laughed out loud, like couldn't stop laughing. There's a moment when Robert Davi and the uh, comedian stripper show up. It's, you know, their surrogate mom, dad thing. And you get this real gentle, I don't know, emotional scene because they come to see your show. And he says, it must be weird not having anybody, you know, on you, release on you. On you. Release on you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you're an. And it's F-ing. played. It's played poignantly. That's oh, the, God, he that's the craziest that thing. He's like, you know, it's like, it's like, kid, you did well. We're impressed. But instead it comes out as, you know, it must be weird not having anyone release on you. Yeah. Right. So, that, I mean, that's, that's why he was so good in Die Hard. I mean, you can see it. Right <laughs> like, uh, Woohoo. It's just like, nom. Um, I was in high school. Yeah. Let's, let's. Wait, what's the other line you said? You were going to, you were going to say one other line. Oh, well, it was going to lead to this, the, the lunch scene you were talking about. Oh, <laughs> I used to love doggy chow too. And they go there. I don't know, five, six minutes about their love for doggy dog chow. food. Yes. I'm like, well, are we, why are we talking about dog food? <laughs> By the way, in, in Spetters, the femme fatale in that movie, um, because they can't afford to make, to get meat, prime meat for the croquettes that they make, she uses dog food. Okay. <laughs> and it's revealed a later theme. that she had been. So uh, listen, I mean, uh, you know, Esterhaz like owns this, but I swear to God, he and Verhoeven got together and he was like, I want to make American Spetters. Let's do th-. There's even a scene in Spetters where they're about to have sex and the woman says, I have a period. And the man. Oh my God, that was the grossest thing. I'm and sorry. the man like touches it down there and goes, oh, gee, right? And it's in here. It's in here. Well, so- <laughs> let's let's talk about um the weirdest scenes ever in erotic thriller this is an erotic thriller but this film is just this is not erotic it's the opposite of erotic yeah this is the most unsexy sexy movie i think i've ever seen in my entire life i think we can all agree on that like you know basic instinct i get it it's it's hot but this one it's like yeah yeah. you get it you get a dance scene that turns into an oil check when she's basically saying, Hey, um, I'm on my period. And he's like, well, hold on. Let me, let me check down there to confirm. And he's like, Oh, yep. Looks like, wait, did you call that an oil check? Yeah. I, that's oh, okay. I'm trying to, All right. <laughs> trying All to right. keep it clean. I don't know how, I mean, oh, how else can you describe that? Well, it took 34 episodes, but I think we're done. <laughs> actually, you know, you, you know, it's actually, it's funny. You mentioned that scene. Um, yeah, it's a big gross out scene. People are like, oh, and it's the grossest scene. Yeah. And ever. then his response is, I've got towels, which doesn't make any sense. Oh, okay. I, I don't, anyway. Um, but it's funny you mentioned that scene too, because one of the reasons they did like the postmortem, why did this movie fail? Right. And, and it's weird. People have these weird outlandish theories, but one of them was like, well, we also had the Oklahoma City bombing in April and nobody wanted to see, you know, you know, hookers with periods dancing naked or whatever. But then the other thing was middle America wasn't ready for a white actress kissing yeah. on and grinding on a black man. Well, yeah. And yeah, and I, but that actually came out in certain pieces, news pieces or review pieces in 95, which it's like, wow, you know, may, maybe, right? Because it was one of the prominent images um, in the trailer was this sort of interracial yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about it. As Brad would say, they had to hold their pearls. Is that your clutch, clutch the the pearls? Clutch your pearls. So yeah. before we move on, can, I really like James's character, 
but is he necessary in this movie at all? You like it? I I found him super creepy. Well, he was kind of a he I knows mean, what, he he knows this he absolutely knows the score. There's that line yes. that he says, you know, why do you want to be in this show? At least in the other job, it's honest. They want TNA. You show them TNA. Here, they pretend it's something else, but yes. they just want TNA. I, I, you know, and then he just turns into a black stereotype with impregnating a, a woman, and you know, it's just yeah. I, I just mean, like you have to wonder why that was actually included, but I think it's 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 on purpose. It can only be well because like because Zach, the white guy, can have sex with women. It has no penalty whatsoever. James, the black guy, you know, he has to turn into the stereotype of now he's impregnating women and, you know, blood. And yada, his dream yada, yada. gets crushed. Yes. They have to yes. leave and work but at his I, mother's yeah. store. I think, I think that's a, that's an intentional social commentary that comes yeah. through. I mean, I, I will ask a little bit later about social commentary, which, which is successful, which isn't, or because uh, I don't know. When, when you talk about the weirdest scenes in erotic thriller, I don't know what it means. I mean, tell me why a bunch of chimpanzees have to break out and backstage and just run around and, and defecate and put lipstick on. I mean, wh what was that about? And then the uh, two kids in the back were- well, Just the chaos of all the stuff that goes yeah, on I think backstage, that, Yeah, right? I think yeah. that's just all about like the chaos of backstage. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that when Nomi slips, she slips on the monkey shit. Yeah, because it so, makes a sound. It does make a sound. Yeah. <laughs> you were there's no one home, so okay. I was listening very loudly. And <laughs> okay. It makes like a squishy sound. And I was like, wait. I missed that. That was the, yes, that was monk. Okay, yes. Yes, it was. But speak, speaking of non-erotic, let's get to Kyle's the... O-Face. Huh? <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin's O-Face, which I don't know Actually, what that looks like. That, so... that looked like a... That his expression looked like um, what's his name in Alien when the xenomorph is chest bursting out. He was giving like the same oh <laughs> expression, and I'm like, is that your O face? Because that's really so, disgusting. Oh god! So what's funny about what's amazing about that scene? First of all, th this is a weird tidbit. Um, Esterhaus thinks that Brad, your favorite, Quentin Tarantino, is a like a complete hack and just rips off movies, right? He's continue he's continually criticized Quentin Tarantino, right? Which is odd because I distinctly remember Quentin Tarantino championing this. He movie loves this movie, yes, and saying, you know, wow, it's the most it's the highest paid studio exploitation film you've ever seen. Where else can you see somebody dry hump someone to release? Hey, man, if they just had more feet. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what um, it was missing. But I was gonna, uh, I was gonna talk about the the pool sex scene. So it's weird, like this movie's supposed to be like an erotic thriller, right? But there's only. There's the rape scene, obviously, which is very traumatic, but there's only one consensual sex scene. Everything else is just naked women and flirting, right? There's the one sex scene in the pool. Um, but that is so hysterical, like her, like, you know, the, whatever. She's having a seizure. So this goes back to Brad saying, you know, why, why were there mirrored bookends of her hitchhiking? Because that's the, that's the, cinematic theme that they have been going through this parallelism right nomi is kind of like crystal the cheetah is a lot like the stardust when he when she seduces zach she does that move where she goes down and she's like going like this and the the music the song by the my life is the thrill kill cult is doing that those thrashing actions are the same that she does in the pool 
So they're mirroring. I did notice that it looked like the same dance in the pool that she was yeah. doing when she was giving him the well, last. She knows it works. Exactly. Well, she's giving him what he wants to see, right? So first she's doing it just to get the money. Um, and then this time she's doing it, why? To elevate and get the role and to move up in the hierarchy. She becomes no uh, Crystal's understudy. So they do a lot of that that mirroring um, and the moves are specific, you know, like a lot of the moves that you see her do on the, in the cheetah, you know, kind of like, it's almost like she's punching and she's kickboxing and she's doing all this. By the way, I memorized all the dance moves. Um, you do not want to see me redoing <laughs> oh, them. I feel I, like, I, I feel like we need to put a video on the website to I know <laughs> promote the episode of you doing the dance moves. I know all of the dance moves. I so can I ask you a, a, a question as someone who doesn't know anything about dancing? Yeah. Is Elizabeth Berkeley a good dancer? Yes, I okay. I think so. But okay. the problem is, is I mean, this is a little like, like if if they put Elizabeth Berkeley in front of the New York City Ballet, right? Okay, you're always going to look at her and go, "Well, you're terrible," and she's surrounded by all of these experts, right? But I got to tell you, I. I think she holds her own. Her form is, may not be the best, but I think she she really does hold her own and she has a background in dance, um, which she brought to the uh, Jesse Spano character as well. So she's um, she is a trained dancer. Yeah, I saw the Zack Attack episode, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So I have a question. I'm gonna start with you, Brad. We we're going to class it up a little bit because I've already made the uh, oil change remark and uh, <laughs> which... I apologize yeah. if that yeah. offends any. It's the only thing I can. Trying to be, you know, halfway. You, made, you 13, made it way worse. I made it worse. <laughs> I I know I did. So, but if if we're if we're bringing it up a level, let's talk about the social commentary. So, there's a lot of stuff in this, and just a couple of things that pop up is like the weaponization of, of sexuality, like how sex is used against people. Um, obviously there's, there's a critique of Vegas, Hollywood there, there's a huge question mark between, and I, I think you, you said it eloquently, Jose, like what, what is the difference between the cheetah and the show goddess? Um, and they're, you know, they're basically trying to say those, those levels of entertainment, what is the difference? Um, the nihilism that takes place or, or the view, the nihilistic view, especially against women that is all over this thing. And Zach sort of as fame personified and the cost of fame. So basically he ends up, I think, being the true antagonist of the film for, for Nomi and everybody for the most part. And he doesn't want to kind of- He got an MBA for this. Yes. What's an MBA? <laughs> we didn't talk about that line, but yeah. that- It's a degree that's mostly useless in the real world. Yeah. And, and he's not out to destroy her, but I mean, his prime purpose is to corrupt her, right? So to turn her into the next crystal. But, Control her, yeah. Yeah. So, or just use her. I mean, when, he, when she comes in and she says, why did you take away the understudy? He says, well, she threatened to get her lawyers involved. You're not worth it. And he says right. it like flat out, you're not worth it. And he, he pretends to be like, oh shit, I fucked up or whatever. But you know, that's just who he is. He's, he's a pimp. James calls him a pimp. The only right. people I know that got pimp cars are pimps. So, yeah. Well, and so my, my question is, and again, Brad and I come at this film, not from seeing it first time when it was treated as a dramatic but as something where they're advertising it as sort of trashy fun. Yeah. Add, this, this commentary is in there. Mm -hmm. Verhoeven has yep. it up and down. Yep. Do you think it works? 
Um, I, so, <laughs> and I don't want to like float our own boats or anything like that, but I, th- I think you kind of have to, to understand what is going on. You just can't say, oh, there's naked people and uh, there's some sex in a pool and, uh, you know, yada, 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 let's end this thing. Like you, you kind of got to look for it and understand exactly what's going on um, and I think you also missed on one. I, I don't know if Fairhoven was doing this on purpose, but I think this is kind of a degrade sex workers in a big way. Um, the way they, she has to like run from being a prostitute and all this stuff. And I know now in 2020, we or 2021, we look at sex workers a little bit differently as not these like terrible people, but you know, now we have people on fans only that are essentially sex workers making a lot of money. And I don't feel like they're as deified or as, you know, looked down upon as, as people in the eighties who were, you know, whores for crack cocaine, you know, and stuff like we've come a long way, but I think this film is, is, is problematic when it comes to looking at sex workers. But I think some of the good things it does do is like Zach has this information on Nomi and instead of like letting that like control her, she just like, gets up and leaves now is she going to get up and leave and have that situation happen all over again we don't know more than likely yes but she's at least like i don't know trying to escape it a little bit and not let these men control her because secretly they've kind of been in the background controlling her life you know the guy from the cheetah controls her the guy you know zach controls her from goddess then you know there's that so like it's there. And, and again, I, I don't want to say we're smart people. I'm never say that I'm like a super smart person, but you, you can't just go into this movie thinking that you're going to get, you know, a film about fully naked women dancing. Cause yeah, you're good. It's there, but there's a lot more going on. It's like that thing where, you know, you go into a store and you want something, but it's not on the shelf. And they go, go, well, we got to go get it. We got to go look for it in the back. You got to go look for the good stuff in the back of this movie. Like that's, that's, a, that's what's going on. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, Jose, I, I think you've got I a think, strong opinion on this one though, right? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I was going to say that um, I've thought about this a lot. Like, is this movie feminist? Because I think there's a lot of criticism that's leveled at Paul Verhoeven that his films are misogynist, right? So one of the things that, that drummed him out of, of uh, the Netherlands with spetters was that um, there's male frontal nudity in it. There are erect penises in it. There is the period thing. There's like, you know, all this overt sexuality. And Lars von Trier was like, just having a wet dream over those old movies. Then. <laughs> right, exactly. And so the question becomes, you know, is this feminist? Like Camille Paglia, who's a, a pretty famous feminist, she championed basic instinct. She absolutely loved it, right? And so I look at this movie and I think, is, you know, is it feminist? Are the women acting from a place of power or are they acting to take back the power, which they are, Nomi's doing it, right? Um, but I don't, I mean, I would, it does smack as misogynist because it's men writing this, right? Um, but at the same time, this movie really walks a weird fine line. Like the women know that to get into this show, they, they have to exploit themselves. They have to get naked. They have to look pretty. They have to do these things. And so 
you know, is it empowering if you allow yourself to be seen that way, but not under the thumb of someone else? Like, I think that's a, that's a challenging sort of aspect that they're trying to show you. And, you know, Brad, you're right. This isn't a movie that you just turn on. You sort of do have to think about it. Um, and, and I think part of the expectations that were sort of ruined um, was that this was hyped up as like this examination of Las Vegas and its seediness and the, you know, the stripper culture, but it was really something different. And some people criticize it saying, you know, you know, it's not really a right view of how women are in like the workplace or whatever, but it's very specific to the showbiz industry. Um, and I think there is some potent re-examining of it, especially in light of the whole Me Too thing. Like all you have to do is look at that. Uh, a lot of what I'm saying, if you look at that audition scene where Tony Moss just comes in and just insults all the women, right? Uh, look at, look at, look at these. They look like watermelon. This is a stage, not a patch. See ya. Or the one girl comes in and she says, I got my nose done because you told me to. Um, I lost weight because you told me to. And he says, your ears are sticking out. See ya. By the way, that girl is a stunt woman, Danielle Burgios. She's a stunt woman. She's one of the uncredited um, Trinity doubles um, in the Matrix movies. Oh, okay. Um, and she also did, a, I think she did like a stunt woman workout or something like that, you know? But it's like they're they're lining up for this humiliation, you know, or, or, and this exploitation because they're trying to get somewhere. And again, I think there's this re-examination of what our society is going through now because I think we're going through, through a time where people are calling out that kind of behavior and they're saying, I'm not going to denigrate myself. I'm not going to do the casting couch thing to get higher because it never should have started to begin with. Um, and, you know, I think that's what keeps this movie relevant is it's kind of like a prism, right? You can look at it really as one way junk or you can superimpose you know, your feelings on it, like, like a work of art, right? When you go to see a painting or a statue, nobody tells you, I mean, there's a card there that explains it, right? But nobody tells you what to expect, what the hype is, and you bring your own perceptions and, and uh, feelings to it, you know? Yeah, I, I find this to be a hard film to, to talk about when you get to the social commentary, because even as we're talking tonight, and you go back and you look at the history of the film and it's a bunch of middle-aged white dudes who made a film that was supposed to be empowering for women and show what was supposed to be going on within that industry. And um, e even me sitting there trying to, <laughs> I don't know, datify it or, or bring it up to PG-13 level. And, and I take like women's mes menstruation <laughs> equated to oil. To I mean, it, there's it's so hard, I think for us to be able to sit there and look at it, engage it from a social commentary in terms of, is that really what the layout of land is for women? Um, I don't know if it's accurate because again, if you have that performance and she's up to 11 and she's always showing this aggression, I mean, women aren't like that. I, I think they're, they're maneuvering through all of these things at a different pace than what she's doing. But for, I don't know, the sensationalism of the film and Joe Estrahaus and Paul, I mean, they're obviously making these cinematic choices for a reason. I just don't know what that reason is. So I think yeah. some of the commentary works. I think as a Dutch filmmaker looking at America, those things are spot on. I, don't... And I think that's what his total intention was, but, but you're right. It's not, 
it's not anything specific. It's all just charged up. It's hyperbolic. It's exaggerated. Yes. It's not real. It's a fantasy, but it's still, you know, making that commentary. Yeah. And I don't know if that exaggeration, like I said, hurts it or helps it or highlights some things. Like I said, uh, Berkeley's performance is unforgettable. It's the thing that I remember the most out of the film because it's hyper, it, it's so hyper, it's so intense. Now I only but, remember her teeth because you said it. Yeah, but I mean, you, you sit there and you look at the social commentary and you go, hey, I, I think on some of the levels it works, but does that hyperness, does her being the Yosemite Sam of Vegas, does that hurt or hinder um, a view of, of, I don't know, feminism with, within that workplace. I, I don't know. I mean, a, I, I would, it's complicated. I would, it's very complicated. <laughs> it's I, very I, complicated. I would want to hear from my wife or, you know, another female or somebody in that to do it. Because like I said, even me just talking about the film, I'm stepping on landmines, just trying to get over things that, and, you know, not to get too personal, but I, it's, even today I've got a daughter and I got a wife and when we go shopping and it's like, Oh, I need tampons, stuff like that. I'm like, oh, okay. Whoa. And I, why do I feel embarrassed about buying this? I mean, it's just a natural thing, but for guys, it's just like, Oh yeah, I got to go down this aisle. And yeah. when, when I think of like, Oh, <laughs> doesn't bother is, me. I know, but, I, but I'm <laughs> sitting there like, what is wrong with you, Troy? Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, Oh, well it's, it's that fact in and of itself, which means that I can't pick up necessarily on whether or not this is actual social commentary for those issues outside of recognizing something's there. Like I can, like Brad said, I can recognize something's going on um, and I can pick up on things that probably are about us as Americans or that industry, et cetera. But I struggle with this one because I don't know if, if that depiction of that character helps or hinders any of the commentary that goes on in terms of, you know, female empowerment. So, you know, Brad, back to uh, this documentary we've been talking about, You Don't Know Me. Um, what I think that that does really, really well, and you just have to see it, um, but it's very subtle. While they're talking about all the commentary about this um, and showgirls and specific things in showgirls, what they do is they will show you similarly themed scenes from other works by Paul Verhoeven. And I, I think that what that documentary does so well is it tells you Showgirls is no different from the kind of commentary and satire that Verhoeven has been doing his entire career. Um, and like I said, you just have to see it because at some point, you know, there's a collage of of female characters vomiting in all in like his movies. And it's sort of like, oh my God, he that's it's something all over he the goes place. to. Yeah. That's something he he uses to viscerally make the audience respond. Um, and then even like scenes of Robocop, they're juxtapositioning like his hyperbole and his exaggeration. And this is his like stock and trade and how he works, you know? Um, it, it's actually a really it's a good documentary. Yeah, I, we, we should I was talk like, about it real quick. Get, but. And, and I, I would say that is one of the reasons why I gave this movie more of a chance than normal is because I know Verhoeven and I know his, his dependency on turning things up to 11 to make a point, uh, you know. It, it's not even that. I, I Like how, how Jose said it, 
one of the things the documentary does, and we'll, we'll talk about it real quick. It's a documentary from 2019 called um, You Don't Know Me. It really does a great job of showing where Showgirls fits within his filmography, but it, but it does a really good job. And here's the thing. Can, can you appreciate the documentary without seeing Showgirls? I don't know. I don't think so. I think you have to have seen Showgirls. But once you see Showgirls, it's a fantastic documentary on his film career. Because one of the things that it points out was everybody has always said he's an intelligent social commentator when violence was at the center of the film. And one of the things that people struggle with Showgirls is it's not violence is at the center. Now sex is at the center. And all of a sudden, just because it's not violence, but it's sex, he seems with most people to lose his status um, as a satirist or social commentator. But and isn't his sex really violent in this movie? It, it is, but it's again, gymnastics, surely. <laughs> but it, it's a different change because if you look at Robocop, Total Recall, those other things that he's sort of famous for, everybody goes, oh, he's, he's making this great um, satire about our nation or that particular condition. He's doing the same thing in Showgirls. To Jose's point, they do a very good job of going, here are all the things that he's doing throughout of his film. So if anybody says Showgirls doesn't fit within a Paul Verhoeven filmography, you're dead wrong. And here's why. Um, and the other thing it does is it starts to, so you made the analogy, Brad, there's something here, but you got to go to the back of the store. <laughs> I like the that. scene in this film that threw me off where my mouth was just wide open. I'm like, what is going on here is that whole lunch scene <laughs> where they have this big back and forth and they go to the, so the documentary starts talking about that scene in particular. And what it does is it's saying, look at what Verhoeven's doing here from a technical perspective. During the whole lunch scene, he starts to break continuity. And what they're talking about is you'll see one shot where Crystal is on the left side of the screen, Nomi's on the right, they go through this exchange. There's something that occurs in the dialogue, and then they break continuity visually. And all of a sudden, Crystal's on the, or excuse me, Nomi's on the left side of the screen, and Crystal's on the right side. So they of like the switch screen places, like from a visual well, representation. And well, the, the technical term is it's called crossing the line. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when you in, in typical filmography, when you set it up, there are certain ways to cut like a conversation. But in this particular scene, they cross the line. Right. Yep. But but it's sort of representative of how they're. But that's, they're the, that's the point in the, the film. Point. Yeah, that's the point in the film, though, where she starts to climb that Vegas sort of corporate ladder, because after that lunch scene come all of the events where Nomi starts to go down that path. Right. So it, that documentary, if anybody has seen Showgirls, I strongly recommend go check out this documentary. It, it's fantastic, not just in trying to understand, like I said, the appreciation that this film has now and even the history of it, but more importantly for just seeing how good of a director Paul Verhoeven is. It's so good. Absolutely. I think that was, um, I'm, I'm trying to look it up now. Jeffrey McHale is the, is the gentleman who uh, produced it, put it all together, the director and editor. Um, it's called You Don't Know Me. Um, it's an hour and 34 minutes. It even goes into the very famous, um, uh, I think it was like 2014 or 2015, um, the anniversary of the movie. Yes. They actually staged it in, um, uh, was it a cemetery, I think? Yeah, they, was, yeah, yeah. they staged it somewhere and 4,000 people showed up to watch Showgirls projected. And um, Elizabeth Berkeley showed up and she actually did this whole thing talking about it and, you know, um, she famously says that 
that's the time where she actually made peace with it because she said, you know, this is the first time I'm able to watch it with 4,000 people that want to see it, that appreciate it versus seeing a premiere, having people walk out, people were walking out of the premiere, um, you know, and then just like Verhoeven was just aghast that, that audiences couldn't see his vision. They were just so, you, you know, more to, more to Troy, Troy's point, we can shoot each other in movies, but we can't have sex with each other. Like that's just verboten. Like nobody, right. nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to talk about that, you know? Um, yeah. So, but it's a, it's a good trailer. It's a good documentary. Was this yeah. movie just way of before it's time? It's a good question. It probably was, I think, um, you know, as lurid as it is, it's not any different from, you know, those Lifetime movies, you know, like, you know, Killing My Husband, the, the Betty, the Betty Thomas story, you know, whatever. Well, like, hold, hold it's on. very if, Jerry if, Springer, very. If you take you know, one of those films and if that film was a, a person and it did a bunch of lines of cocaine, then, <laughs> then you that's get what showgirls. Yeah, right, right, right. But, you know, this sort of lurid stuff, I mean, it's in our reality TV right? Think about the plot. Think about these reality shows you're watching. It's not too far, right? Jerry Springer, all of that. It, it might've been the wrong time for this. <laughs> and I think if this movie comes out now, it doesn't get an NC-17. No, no, probably not. It gets an R. Well, let me <laughs> ask you this, Brad, is, is Showgirls neo-noir? And, and the reason why I asked that is if you look at some of the tropes, it, the only thing it doesn't have, well, I mean, you don't have the detective. Yeah, they don't have a detective. You, it, it deals with the underbelly of Vegas. There is a crime that occurs, but you get the femme fatale, you get the blurring of the lines between good and, and bad, revenge, alienation. It, it is a bit of a crime drama towards the end there. It attempts no nonsense dialogue, meaning it. <laughs> yeah, there is. Yeah, there's. Yeah, no. It's nonsense. like, hey, let me let me get to this point. There's no sense to the dialogue, but there's no sense there's no to the subtext. dialogue. It's yeah, very. It's, you're right. It's very straight out there. I want more Art there. Deco in my uh, noir films. Well, yeah, and and you get a protagonist running away from their past in a very bleak view of humanity. So again, <laughs> another another thing I find fascinating about this is erotic thrillers. Their their DNA is film noir. And yeah, they just the, turn up the sex. Yeah, this turns up the sex, drops a couple, a couple of other elements, but how much of it does it still retain its neo-noir or film noir DNA? I, I think it's there. I just don't think you would typically classify this as like a typical neo-noir, but I, mm. I see it. I see it all over the place in this. And thing. Some, some of the lighting echoes that as well, um, because I've seen it a million times. There are scenes where characters are revealing their true selves and they are always in some sort of weird, stark, colorful lighting. Oh, like the it's red, like fuchsia or red or yeah, blue. And, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Even in the beginning, when uh, they're sitting in that cafe and she's throwing the fries, um, it's it's all very like it's it's blinking colors and, and fuchsia and dark, unnatural colors in some ways, you know. Um, by the way, Verhoeven says that this is a Christmas movie, and I tried. Oh, I to was going to ask you about that. And I tried to look, you can see some of the Christmas decorations. It takes but place at Christmas. Well, so that doesn't always bear out unless, unless, so in the beginning when they're talking in the, in the diner, it's, you hear these kids go trick or treat, trick or treat, right? So it's Halloween, right? Now here's the weird thing. When it flashes to um, Molly's trailer, it says six weeks later. So if it were truly Halloween, 
that puts us beyond Christmas. But there are Christmas decorations if you look in the background. Well, there's Christmas decorations in the office. Um, wait, wait, it, wait. It's all wait. over the place. No. If it's Halloween, there's four weeks in November. And then right. Another- so if you're, if you're thinking like they start celebrating or decorating for Halloween in the beginning of October, then it puts us at Christmas. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that I never, I never picked up on that until, until I think I read it. Well, I wrote that down because we had a big discussion over Die Hard being a Christmas film. So I was going to ask Brad, um, well, if if this movie is a Christmas movie, then Die Hard is a 100% a Christmas movie or real, even more so (laughs) I would say. And and both have Robert Davy. You could have a Robert Davy Christmas, like double feature. Yeah. Am I the only person that, that Kyle Watkins hair really bothered? Like that 1995 why, why did it bother you though I mean, yeah, i'm I curious just, i, I didn't pick up on that it's, it's just that parted like prince family and thing oh my I god because like every it. kid in my middle school had it when i was 13 <laughs> years old and it's like it's like dates this movie so much in the first scene you see him it's like he looks like toby mcguire and oh, like Ma- in spider-man, spider-man 3. 3 where it's like over his eye and he's like oh it's just it was so bad actually brad i have an x-files connection for you Ooh. um so one of Al's girls, right? So in the beginning of the, the cheetah scene, when the one girl is like, no, me, do my boobs look big? Um, and then she, the one, the lady, D, the dancer's name is D, who says, shit, Carmi thinks she's pregnant again. Yeah. That is an actress named Bobby Phillips. And if you remember X-Files season three, War of the Coprophages, it's the killer cockroach episode. Yes. She was Bambi. The scientist who ends up falling in love with the wheelchair bound guy and they start talking about like AI and insects and you know whatever. Do you remember? Do you remember? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And then Scully's like Bambi. Her name is Bambi. Scully. (laughs) That's a great episode. Great episode. But that's her. I was like, oh my God. Scully, it's the cockroaches. What oh, else? Mulder, um, people have anaphylactic shock from cockroaches. I'm I'm super ready to to get to the question. But before we do, Brad, yeah. um, outside of uh, Kyle McLaughlin's hair, was there anything else that you? Because I, I know you have a lot of notes on this thing. Do my notes say all sorts of things? And I don't know if we touched on them or not. But no, I think I'm done. <laughs> oh wait, one other one other thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Andrew Andrew Carver is played by William Shockley, who. Um, he became sort of famous after this for being um, the, sh- the hot shirtless hunk on uh, Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. But more importantly, Shockley is the would-be robber rapist who gets shot in the balls in RoboCop. Oh. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I okay. remember. All right. <laughs> so it's funny that, you know, Verhoeven hires him again to get kicked yeah, to so shit he's like, and kill. Hey, you're a good... <laughs> You're a good raper guy. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Would you be offended if like I had you be a, like a creep in my movie and you were trying to rape a woman and I shot you in the balls and then a few years later I'm like, hey, Jose, you did such a good job pretending to rape that woman. Would you come back and actually do it in this film? Absolutely. I love yeah. you, Paul. I'll yeah. do it. Oh my God. <laughs> Typecasting. Um all right. Well, let, let's get to the question. So I'm going to start with you, Jose. We've spent a lot of time talking about... God, thank uh, you for letting me come on. <laughs> no, it's been awesome. You've, you've once again blown my mind with just all the trivia facts and 
and drawing the correlation between an actor film, the, the themes, everything else. This is why I just love talking movies with you. But obviously we've got a, a show called Not a Bomb. And the question is Showgirls, 1995, it bombed back there, both financially, critically. We're looking at it at 2021. Um, what's your opinion of Showgirls? Is, is it a bomb? It is not a bomb. It is a misunderstood piece of cinematic art. So do you, do you find your love of it falls more on the camp um, trashy art side or because of um, you know, the, the dr dramatic elements to it? I mean, when, when you watch this thing, what kind of lens are you looking at it? So I don't really see it as camp. Um, you know, Susan Sontag's you know, popular definition of camp as the sort of failed seriousness um, and, you know, the other question is, is, can you intentionally make something camp? Sure, why not? But I see this as a drama. I see it as um, a musical, like a work of art that is sort of like a prism for the social commentary okay. and works on different levels. So, yeah, not a bomb. Yeah. All right. Brad, how about you, man? I'm really, I have no idea. Most of the time we watch a film, <laughs> I'm like, yep. Brad's going to vote this way or he yeah. thinks this, but uh, I have no clue. Cause even honestly, I, I still really don't. Yeah. But so, you got to pick one, man. Yeah, I know. I know. And, and I don't think it's a camp either. Just be, and again, it's hard to take out the baggage of Verhoeven and like know him as a filmmaker and look at this movie independently and, and take those things out. I would say I, just me, like, finishing this movie and, and today and like thinking about it, like, I don't think it is a bomb because I'm just, I'm kind of fascinated by it in a weird way. Like, I don't know if I'm going to watch the movie more after this, but I'll probably watch that documentary and, and kind of look into some of the things going on in this movie and probably re-examine RoboCop and Total Recall and all that stuff again, just to kind of see, you know, the connections and stuff. So I guess it's not a bomb. So wait, wait, let me ask you this. Fascinated, like fascinated at David Cronenberg's crash or like fascinated by like fascinated Nolan's inception. Inception. Okay. <laughs> I can, I can do without crash. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. Are you kidding me? No, I mean, I, you, I think everyone should see that movie one time and then like move on. But well, I don't think Cronenberg. it's I don't think it's a surprise that I love Showgirls and I like Crash. I think yeah. you guys could have seen that coming. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that that was obvious. <laughs> They're um, going to tell me like Antichrist or something like that. I'd be like, hey, you know, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Okay. All right, yeah. um, uh, I love that movie. I took my husband to see it and he banned me from picking the movie for a month. You look like a melancholia guy too. Like, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, I get, yeah. I, I get And Dancer in the Dark. Oh God, I love that film. That destroyed me. That's so I good. I loved though. it though. Anyway. Um, Troy, Troy. Uh, I, gosh, I was hoping we'd talk a little bit more because I still haven't made up my mind. I, I'll say this. It is unforgettable for that single performance. I find a lot of questions after I watch this and even going back and and analyzing my comments on other films that have to deal with some of the same type of topics, especially when it comes to female empowerment. I'll say this, the film made me really kind of take a step back and go, how much do I know about some of these topics as they're being shown? Even when I'm just talking about things 
um, again, using that analogy, the poor analogy of, Hey, I don't know how to describe this, but I'm going to, I'm going to equate it with this and go, wow, that was really bad. But at, this is the movie that makes me kind of force myself to go. You really got to think about things differently. Um, and for that, I, I don't think it's a bomb. I actually get a little upset when I now have seen it and I've read about it, et cetera. And I see these, um, an instant camp classic, or even on the documentary, the, the showgirls uh, play that they do and these for laughs, the musical or whatnot. Um, and all these people that for midnight screenings who are laughing at it, et cetera, don't get me wrong. It, it has some horrible dialogue. It's probably one of the most poorly written films that it, the, the screenplay is up there with something like Miami Connection at times. Yeah, this is Samurai Cop. This yeah, is close to the Samurai, Samurai Cop. Samurai Cop, something like that. Yeah. However, <laughs> I almost think that's intentional and adds to the drama. And I could 100% see myself going back and watching this again and probably picking up something else. But, you know, I got to say, it's the, the social commentary. It's, it's one of the few films that we talked about in 34 episodes that I'm still pushing through my head and it's made me even kind of um, self-analyze like how I talk or how I view about those topics and go, wow, you're, you, you do talk like a white male middle-aged <laughs> guy on the, some of these issues. So um, you, you, you should realize that. So, you know, for that's for character that, development, Troy. It, uh, yeah. But again, I find it's it very arc. tragic, yeah. but, but that's weird. I mean, how many movies do you run across where you go, you watch it and this is just my experience i watch it i find it to be very tragic because of the things that we talked about i don't think she has a character arc but i think she's caught in just this whole she's pushing the boulder up the hill again and it's going to roll right back down right and and that's how i see it when you get to that last scene and she's going to los angeles but how many movies do you watch and you go hey as a viewer you kind of go through a character arc and you open your eyes a little bit and you go holy cow like how good do we have it just being a guy? I mean, seriously, how, no, yes, how good me, do we have it? Yeah. Um, and this is one of those films that um, kind of reminds you of that. And I, and you don't feel guilty over it. You just kind of look at it and you go, Hey, you, you gotta, you gotta take an appreciative look for what's going on. And then, you know, also understand we don't know shit about anything that, you know, a female goes through. And maybe that's what Verhoeven is really trying to say about the U.S. Yeah, I'll take challenging cinema any day over a brain dead thriller. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you look at Showgirls, um, within all of these erotic thrillers, you know, from '81 to '99 with Eyes Wide Shut, I'm I'm sitting here thinking like, wow, I didn't think this hard when I saw Eyes Wide Shut. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. it's a good film, but I'm just saying I need to go back and visit Eyes, Eyes Wide Shut. But I'm, you know, Disclosure, Color of Night, Intersection, Indecent Proposal. You know, take Indecent Proposal and Disclosure. They're interesting concepts. But outside of maybe that one concept, you're really not talking about it outside of you go to your partner and go, oh, would you really sleep with somebody if they paid a million dollars? And how would I deal with that? Showgirls has a lot more depth than Indecent Proposal. Yeah. Um, because it's, I think it's tackling a lot more, which is just weird. Right. So more boobs weird. too. That's that is true. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Well, Jose, man, I Dude, knew. Do we just give what? All three of us 
I know. I, three for three. I wait. Has how many times has this happened? <laughs> well, not many. Not, not many. You're right. It's and if you had asked me going in, like when when I said, "Hey, we're going to review this," I, I I thought it would be one of those. We're just going to make fun of it for maybe an hour and a half, and and maybe talk about how much we like Paul Vero. I, I really didn't think I would walk away this week going, uh, ha- having these epiphanies about just me and, and my your view. whiteness, your whiteness, my, whiteness. Is yeah. my male whiteness. Um, so yeah, that's- hey, you know when the one time that male whiteness doesn't come into uh, an advantage when you're waiting to get your COVID shot because I am like dead last on the list. <laughs> that's all right. Just, I think that's also by profession too, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm lucky. We'll I was it. lucky I got mine, but so well, I have my second like, shot February. I think I'm like dead last. Yeah. I, I think I am too. Well, listen, <laughs> Jose, I I knew this would be just an epic conversation. I'm so glad you took the time to uh, just chat with Brad and I. We are definitely having you on many, 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 oh, many more episodes. Thank you, thank you for having so me. Fun. I was afraid I was going to dominate and take over, but no, it's, it, it just not, it's a natural <laughs> fit, man. I yeah. thank you so much. Um, you thanks guys. Good to meet you, Brad. Yeah, you too. So Wait, Brad, are you originally from Kentucky? Is that where the accent's from? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that obvious? <laughs> well, no, no, no. You mentioned it in your, yes. in your podcast. Yes. And one of my questions for you was going to be like, you know, what do you think Kentucky should be famous for? Not just Josh Hutcherson and Jennifer Lawrence. Like what, when you when you when people think Kentucky, what do you want them to think about? I mean, bourbon would be nice. Well, okay. So besides bourbon, bourbon Jennifer Lawrence, and yeah. Josh Hutcherson, and, ho- and horse racing, and Louisville Sluggers. Oh, uh, that's a cool museum. <sighs> it's hard. I mean, horse racing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'll take it. I'll take it. Gambling, but gambling, gambling isn't. <laughs> besides horse racing, gambling is not legal in Kentucky. It's. A mess, but where did you live in Kentucky? Lexington. Gotcha. So Brad, if people want to reach out to us, tell us their thoughts on showgirls, tell me how stupid I am for my Yosemite Sam uh, and Bugs Bunny connection. Never getting that out of my head. How do they reach us? That is uh, not a bomb pod at gmail.com. And then we're all over social uh, media. And when I say all over social media, uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So anywhere else, that's not us. Yeah, uh, and, and keep sending in your suggestions. We are tracking all of it. Um, we're going to be doing a couple of the ones that we received for the book giveaway in March. And all the other ones that came in, we're just adding to our list and, and we'll hit them at some point. So we've got, uh, we've got actually some interesting back and forth on Star 80 uh, from uh, our listeners. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to pick that one. But next week brad it's going to be your pick and we're going into february we're going to kind of go back to the original list that we started um creating you know when we put the show together and i think you're picking a movie from like one of the top 10 um that we originally had right yes i'm picking 2008's uh wachowski uh siblings directed racer movie uh speed racer Oh my god, I love Speed Racer. Speed Racer. It's so good. Now I have seen every episode of the cartoon, so I will just Me say too. that. So have, have you, you seen never Speed seen Racer? the cartoon? Oh I've, yeah, I love Speed Racer. The movie? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> it's not a first so, watch. Yeah, it's not a first watch. And but it's one of those and, and we'll talk in detail. It's one that I discovered like years after. 
Uh, and it's, and it took a lot of people. It's one of those that I kind of wish us on the theater now, but, um, yeah, I saw it opening day. Oh, wow. Uh, I went to, it was, I think I saw it in IMAX. It was amazing. Oh, that's cool. Y'all should do Jupiter ascending. That's a Wachowski. uh... Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I'll write it down. I'll write it down because you're on the call, but then I'm going to quickly erase it. Yeah. (laughs) I have the yeah. 3D Blu-ray. I like it. It's we're, it's terrible. We're gonna have a guest. <laughs> so um, you were the one. Okay, yeah, he's the one guy. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have a guest for next week. Um, a good friend of ours reached out. I'm kind of nervous about next week because one of the very first podcasts. There were two that I listened to um, about films. One was Night of Living podcast, which they just did a Showgirls episode too. Oh. I haven't listened to it. I intentionally did not listen to it because I didn't want to be swayed by. Uh, Freddie, Amy, Andy, you know, any of them, um, Kelly talking about the film. Uh, but the other podcast that I've listened to for, for many, many years, and they're really good friends is Gentleman Guide to Midnight Cinema. So Sammy had reached out um, because he listens to the show. I, I didn't know that and uh, wanted to come on. And so he picked Speed Racer. So next weekend- Sam's coming on, yay. Yes, next weekend, I think is Super Bowl. So we'll probably record um, a day or two later. Uh, but we'll try and post at the same time. But if anybody's playing along, go out and, uh, you know, find your Blu-ray disc or 3D. I don't know how it was released uh, or stream it, but definitely watch Speed Racer. And, and hopefully we can get Sammy on the show. And that, that's going to be pretty epic. Sam and I were Instagramming about the little things. We both watched that Ooh. this weekend. Nice. Um, so, well, he's yeah. he's got some shoes to follow, man, because you just you threw down an epic episode, man. Oh, Thank you so much. Oh, thanks. And Tasmanian Devil. I'm going to go with Tasmanian Devil. Tasmanian not, Devil? Not right. Yosemite Sam. I'll do. I don't know. She's, I more, think she's, she's more Yosemite Sam than Tasmanian <laughs> Devil. That jacket, man. Ah, we didn't even touch on that jacket. Yeah. Well, that, that's something Yosemite Sam would wear, not Tasmanian <laughs> Devil. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening. Thank you so much for downloading the episode. Apologize if we've offended you in any way, shape, or form. Not our intention. Yeah, probably. uh, I put my foot in my mouth, I'm sure, but wouldn't be the first time. My opinions do not reflect on the opinions of Brad or Troy. But we agree with your opinions. Just remember, folks, we come from a place of good intent. We're not the smartest, and maybe we don't articulate things very well, but it's coming from a place of good intent. If you remember that, life's life's good, right? So anyways, um, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks, guys.